Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pigler here once again with Adam Chemalewski as we wrap up our Movie May with another B-movie double feature. This time we are talking about Superman and the Mole Men uh, from 1951 and Cast a Deadly Spell from 1991. Chema, I, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to get into these movies. Oh, I definitely am, dude. Got a lot of thoughts. Um, I got a lot of stuff that I would like to hear from you and hear your thoughts on my thoughts and everything because I just got to say, man, for what amounts to two movies that put together that literally are less time than the current the Batman movie that just came out, I think these two movies combined, it's like um, 20 minutes or so less than the mm -hmm. Batman I had a rockin' fucking time. Yeah. And, like, not only did I have a rockin' time, but it was one of those, like, surprising times when you didn't think you were going to have as much fun as you did um, as far as viewing a movie goes. And I did. I had a lot of fun. So I'm ready to do this. Yeah, I, I, I really did, too. And I'll just say, in general, I'm sure we'll we'll wrap up with some, like, overall final thoughts. But uh, I had, I've had fun with all of these movies in some way, shape, or form. All of them. Definitely. Yes, definitely, dude. It's for, for being B-movies and for some of these movies being definitely on the older side in like the 50s, I've, I've been, I've, there was laughs, there was like, like you know, actual like, oh my God, is this really going to happen? Like borderline being on the edge of my seat type mm -hmm. stuff. And and dude, like, I'm, I'm just incredibly happy about that. And I've, I've watched like, I've, this has been like just like a movie month for me. I think I've watched maybe two or three movies a week this week. I even got to the fucking theater. So like, I'm just really, really movied up right now. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, same, same. All right, let's, uh, before we get into it, we got a little lightning round here. Uh, we're going to do the same way as we did last time. Uh, we're going to read the taglines in our best sort of movie tagline voice. Um, there's a caveat here for one of them, at least, I think. But um, So, Chema, um, Superman, uh, Superman and the Mole Men had a few to choose from. Do you want to start us off here? Oh, dude, you start us off. I'm trying to get to the, the part on the IMDb page. Oh, okay, My no uh, computer no froze up really quickly. <clears throat> okay, and this is, you know, since this movie's from 1951, I have to do my best 1950s kind of announcer voice. <clears throat> the all-time ace of action in his first full-length feature adventure. <laughs> Yeah, that about uh, that about fucking uh, sounds like it here. Let me do um, one of these. Let me see here. Okay, showing all five taglines. Wow, really? That's all they got here. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> America's favorite hero, his latest, his greatest. Excellent, excellent. I think we got the. I think we now can do three impressions: nineteen fifties radio guy, old Jewish man, and old Italian man. Yeah. And maybe my surfer bro. It's surfer bro. Surfer bro. We got yeah, four that... impressions between the two of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I got to tell you, when you got four golden impressions that totally rock and are better than anything Frank Caliendo ever did, you fucking milk those things that's, for all they're worth. You're damn right. That, that's right. We're calling out. We're starting beef with Frank Caliendo. <laughs> starting oh beef with God. Frank TV. Oh my God! Of all the fucking name drops right there, I can't even believe that I just said <laughs> I hadn't thought. I didn't seriously hadn't even thought about Frank Caliendo in so so long. The fact that that name even just entered into my mind is surprising enough. He's still around. I feel like he still does stuff with Inside the NBA. 
Okay. Doesn't I think he pops up on there every now and then, but yeah, he's still he's whatever. I mean, he's had a, a great career for someone who just does impressions. Like a, right. I mean, a tremendous career. And that's um, like, I'm telling you, of all the fucking dumb skills, that is just one that like I kind of wish that I had. It's just like I should have just been an impression guy. Who the hell knows what if that I know would have ended up. <laughs> I know. Um <clears throat> Anyway, uh, so here's the caveat. I could not find a tagline for Cast a Deadly Spell. Uh, no, I could not either. And I was just double checking right now when you were talking to make sure that there, see if there was one. Couldn't find anything. It, it looks like um, it looks like later when this, cause this was released on VHS a few years later, it looks like there was like an added, not a tagline, just like an added descriptor at the bottom on the, okay. on the, on the cassette cover. But it's definitely not a tagline. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just like, oh, this is, check out this, mm-hmm. this is what's going, you know, it's not a tagline. Right. So I could not find a tagline for Cast a Deadly Spell. And I'm guessing it's because this was released straight to HBO. I was just going to say that. Like, it has to be because it was a direct, and what, you don't need the tagline if you're just beaming it into something. There's no, because the taglines are like strictly marketing and stuff like right. that. Like, what's going to sound cool, look cool on a poster. And when you don't really have any posters to print except for the ones that hang around the office and the ones that they give out for like the HBO promotional swag back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Like if probably don't have a lot of posters of these. Probably not. Probably not. Um, so let's, yeah. So, uh, so no, so no tagline for cast a deadly spell. Superman had several, um, but we are going to same format as last time. We're going to go through each movie one at a time instead of trying to, you know, pile our thoughts on both of them at the same time. Um, so I'm going to start off with, we're going to start off with Superman and the Mole Men from 1951, as we said before, coming in at a nice crisp 58 minutes. Um, that is, that is nuts to me. That is still nuts. And if, and I'll I'll get into this, I'll get into this, uh, here in a little bit, but I mean, you could have made that movie even shorter if you wanted to. Believe it or not, when I was watching it, I was just like, man, am I not, is it wrong that I say about 10 to 15 minutes of this could be cut off? Probably, probably. We'll get into it though. So, for for Superman and the Mole Men, what were you expecting going into this movie? Okay, so um, there were a couple things. I expected some version of the classic things that you associate with Superman. Like, I obviously knew he was going. I mean, you could tell he was going to be in the suit from the cover. So, like that, I knew we were going to at least get the suit. Mm-hmm. But I kind of expected. Early iterations of maybe like the phone booth, you know, or right. um, maybe just like the ripping open of the dress shirt and there was the S. Like I kind of expected little things like that, you know, and we'll get into that when in the next question and stuff. Um, the other thing, too, and this one I definitely will have a lot to say about it for the next question is I expected this movie, um, con- considering the time period, um, to make some kind of statement about America and yep. to definitely have some kind of messaging. Um, there was definitely that. It was actually kind of the opposite of what I was expecting going into it. And when um, – when they said mole man, there's this character in Marvel comics called mole man. Right. And also, um, in Frank Miller's dark Knight returns, there are these characters called the mutants that have these, I guess, very descriptive eyes that one may say looks sort of resembling like a certain culture in the world. Um, and I thought it was going to be that but it, it it wasn't like an american statement about asia and stuff like right. at least like at least like overtly i mean i think like when we get into the discussion about like the metaphor for this movie i i think you might be able to interpret it and in, like as an allegory for 
a couple different cultures. But being that this was 1951, I kind of expected this to be an answer to World War II. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I feel you there. I definitely feel you there. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I feel you there. And it, it, to me, it didn't seem like there's any overt culture call out. But I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, especially at this point in time, there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiment um, mm-hmm. running rampant. I mean, basically started like in the 20s and 30s. Um, and and, well, I mean, it started well before then, but I mean, in terms of pop culture, um, like you have a lot of, um, anti-Asian sentiment in movies and, and early TV shows and things, uh, even early Mm -hmm. comic books. Um, but I didn't see that here, but I do see, I, at least, at least my initial reading was just sort of an early, um, an early comment on the atomic age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Early. Yes. Right. Ex- ex- exactly. There's definitely some commentary on, on the atomic age there and everything. Um, I just like, like it just for me personally, like just the time period, World War II being right there, I going into it, expected it to be a like America strong Asia weak kind of movie. And, um, and I was wrong. And we'll get into that as the discussion yeah. goes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave that for now. Cause I do want to pick that back up again. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I was fully expecting, kind of having seen, you know, stills of this movie and having seen like some like old gifs and stills from like the from the TV show that subsequently followed this. Um, mm-hmm. Totally expecting a kind of hokey movie, like a little bit cheesy. Um, right. You know, obviously like the bad effects and makeup. I was expecting all of that, um, <clears throat> and we kind of got all of that. But it, it, it's just really interesting that even in sort of its hokiness, um, it, it's still still enjoyable in its hokiness. Like there's this weird sort of comfort food effect to it, yeah. even though it was yeah. like kind of cheesy. You know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Like it definitely was. It had all the cheese and it, it even like when the, the car, like, you know, like in the first like couple minutes of the movie, when you see um, Clark and Lois driving up in the car, like it definitely looks like very like B movie esque. And it's weird mm-hmm. that I go right to a shot of a car to reference that. But um, like it did have that cheesiness to it. But since it's Superman, since it's this like kind of this thing that we've been familiar with, with for so long, there definitely was this like comfort foodie nostalgia kind of feel to it, which um like I guess maybe allowed me to forgive certain things that maybe normally I would be critical about. Yeah. 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 No, I I agree with you there. And I think, I think, um, I think a big, I think a big reason for this is that Superman until Zack Snyder got a hold of Superman, he's always been kind of hokey and kind of Mm -hmm. cheesy. Um, like, I I mean, you know, think, I mean, obviously this movie and the, and the subsequent TV series, um, you know, even the, even the, you know, even the Richard Donner, uh, Superman movies were, well, I think he only did two of them then the rest of them were, were handed off, but, um, you know, like they're definitely more, they have a more serious tone to them, but they are still just like a little bit cheesy. Um, and then, you know, we get to the nineties, Lois and Clark is very much a comedy. Um, right. A, you know, an adventure comedy before, uh, before anything that's serious. And then it really changes in, in Zack Snyder's hands, obviously. Um, it becomes a, right. a, a you know, a, a exercise in existentialism and all sorts of, which is totally fine. I mean, it was great, but it, it's just that that was the first time Superman was like this very dark being, as opposed to this kind of beacon of light and possibly a, little, a cheesy superhero. Right. And even like in Superman Returns, which would have been like, oh, nine, oh, six, maybe somewhere in there. Somewhere in there, um, yeah. 
Yeah, it was that was still like kind of on the cheesier hokey side. You know, they they really captured like the um the supporting casts of characters around Superman, which like added a little bit of levity to the movie. Mm-hmm. And in, in like Zack Snyder's movie, it's like okay, um, Perry might be like the only source of like comic relief. Like everybody in the movie is like serious. Like Jimmy ended up dying in the first couple minutes of Batman vs Superman. Right. So like it's a, a really different take. And um, like there was this article that came out online that I had read a while ago, about, like called like the Superman problem, I think is like what the title was. And it was kind of describing like why they've had all this problem, like problems getting Superman projects off the ground in my modern times and like a lot of it is just like you know they this guy's like indestructible you know there's only so much of this stuff you could actually take you know in terms mm-hmm. of like throwing in buildings and everything you know, basically like everything that's wrong with the last like half an hour of the man of steel <laughs> right but, but um the one thing that the old movies did so well was to have this like light kind of corny cheesy but still really good like approach to handling the character in this world and stuff and it's like i know that like we're still sort of like whatever in like the, the snyder verse and like i really appreciated the work um zach snyder did like even i'm still part of me wants to defend batman versus superman but in it just like shows you this difference in like the generational like approaches to this intellectual property and stuff like that. And part mm-hmm. of me wishes that um, we got a little bit more of like the older kind of Superman in this modern take. I, I agree. I totally agree with you there. Um, so about those expectations, were they met, exceeded, did something fall short? Okay. I probably wouldn't say that anything fell short. Like my time being the time frame, um, anything that I had like, you know, I guess in my mind, like I knew what the effects were going to look like and stuff. So like, at least I had an idea of it. So it wasn't, I was just like, my God, that was super fucking cheesy. Even for the fifties. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, there wasn't anything like that. Um, you know, we didn't get the phone booth. We just got him, you know, running off and coming back and stuff. But that's like how it was. Like the phone booth wasn't always like this Superman lore thing. You know, there were times where he just disappeared and then came back. Right. Um, so like I I wasn't like upset that like, you know, there wasn't the shirt opening up, anything like that. We still got some of these like classic moments and everything like that. Um, there, there weren't a lot of, of them, but that's totally cool because I was really happy with the way that they, they did this movie and stuff. And um, we'll, we'll get into some, some things as we go along. But um, the one thing that definitely like exceeded my expectations was just how, I guess, friendly some of the messaging was towards immigrants for this particular time period. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it was. It, it, it's, um, you know, obviously like, when you're when you're playing out this allegory, you're going to have the xenophobic in this case, like townspeople. Normally, it is townspeople, <laughs> but um, so you're going to have like this xenophobic element to it. And it's not like I expected Superman to like side with the angry townspeople and they all fight the mole men together. But I I did not necessarily expect this movie to be as pro-immigration as it was, and even when you aside from like superman's actual actions of like saving the one mole man or um you know taking him to the hospital and everything like that like the the actual words that come out of superman's mouth were 
very direct, very straightforward and like very, very powerful for that time period. Like, I mean, he lays everything out. Like these people are, they have rights too. you guys cannot do this. You're the ones that are behaving like Nazis and stuff. Like mm-hmm. that, the, that, the, that line especially was surprising, was really surprising yes. that he said that. Yeah. I was incredibly surprised by that. And the way that they, the way that they worked this um, messaging into the movie so directly, I was, that just, I thought that that was so great. And like, I, I don't necessarily believe that it even had to be subtle. Like, I think that the messaging in this situation needed to be as direct as humanly possible and stuff and not something that the audience thinks about and thinks about and puts back together. Like that's mm-hmm. just not the, the place for Superman. Like he's a big, strong dude. He fucking tells you how it is and stuff. So that um, definitely exceeded my expectations um, because in knowing that this movie did come out in the fifties were like, you know, seven, eight years at the most removed from world war two. And then when I also saw that, like, you know, the movie involved digging and then like, you know, you keep digging cause there was a whole thing. Like when we were younger and people don't really say it anymore, but if you just keep on digging. You'll eventually reach China and stuff like there was yeah. that, that dumb thing from when we were kids. So like, I kind of expected this movie to be a America strong Asia weak movie, but this, this really powerful contrast of what my expectations were just exceeded it in so many positive ways. I'm, I'm thinking that's because when, if you go back to the, the roots of comic book, Superman of Schuster and Siegel's comic book, Superman, um, he is pro immigrant and he Mm -hmm. is pro. I mean, he himself is an immigrant, obviously, Right. Um, you know, um, he is pro immigrant. He is pro, um, maybe not as maybe not as far left, um, politically as you would, you know, in modern times. But certainly for the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the idea yeah. of Superman is definitely pretty far left. Oh yes, like there there are these old like snapshots. I, I don't believe they're actually from a comic. I think they're more from ads that just happen to feature Superman. Mm-hmm. And it's like him, like you know, telling your group of kids, and then there's like cursive writing underneath it. You know, like this person is so and so. Like treat people this way and everything like that. You know, they were using Superman um, not as like a, a beacon of strength, but more as like a, a beacon of unity and everything like that back then. Which it just. Like it seems to be, um, it seems to be like not. It just seems to be something that I took. It's almost something that was left out of field that he wasn't being used this way because, in this time period in history, this would have been like the perfect time to like turn Superman into anti this, anti that, anti Japanese, anti German, whatever. Mm-hmm. But instead, they're using him in a way to promote unity and not and not like hate and stuff i'm kind of i'm now i'm very curious about the about the series if yeah. that messaging stays <laughs> consistent throughout the series i would imagine it more or less does um you know you have the same mm-hmm. you had like obviously george reeves was still superman but um you, you have a lot of the same writers and producers on it right, as well so right. i'd imagine it does stay very similar but it just would be interesting to sort of see if that message stay, stayed the same way but i'm with you here just like i was i was very shocked at how overt the messaging was um, unintentionally, unintentionally, the sort of anti-gun message that I'm sure was not written yeah. in with the same idea that we have now. Right. Um, but it, it was, in, I mean, but it's clearly there that like mm-hmm. when he, when, you know, after they shoot him for like the fucking 30th time, 
And, you know, he just kind of stands there, the bullet deflects. And he's just like, he's like, you, you can't, you clearly can't be trusted with guns, so I'm going to take them from you. Right. <laughs> it, it was, it was one of those, I think, and in light of, you know, when we're recording this and the, you know, the current atmosphere in America anyway, it's, mm-hmm. you know, we, we obviously could read more into that, into that anti-gun sentiment, but clearly there was an anti-gun sentiment in 1951 when they were yeah. saying that. You're right. Exactly. And like, it's personally, it's nuts to even think that there was an anti-gun sentiment in 1951, because I don't necessarily like associate um, a gun control movement with the 1950s. You know, like if anything, I thought everybody was for it. And, you know, the family went to, uh, they all had dinner together and then kissed their guns after their kids and stuff like that. But the fact that there was this momentum back then, it's, um, I find it, like I said, I'm just surprised by it. And then it's also like, oh, wow, we've been really fighting this fight in some way, shape or form for this long. And there really is no progress on it. (laughs) Right. It's well, I I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but the NRA originally was a um, was a gun control advocacy group. Yeah. You know, I've heard something about that before. I'm not that knowledgeable in it, but. I, I definitely believe that they it basically it was like you know like if you if you have firearms here here's how to safely handle them and mm-hmm. they and they were they were sort of in favor of more gun control laws um, previously so it's just <laughs> incredible how that's changed <laughs> right I know my God you just yeah. talked about a whole 180 there <laughs> um, so here's just a couple of things that I guess I guess surprised me more so than um, you know exceeded my expectations or disappointed me. Mm-hmm. I was surprised at how small this felt in in a, in a certain way that like, you know, all the trappings of Superman, Metropolis, the phone booth, his, you know, Lex Luthor, um, all of the things that you kind of would associate with Superman were just gone. And yeah, I, I'm going to go ahead and assume that this is because they in part, this is I, I don't I don't I have zero I have zero idea if this what I'm about to say is true. But because I, I couldn't find a definitive answer, but this is clearly a pilot for the TV show that yeah. that they decide, you know, they, they turn into a movie. This right. may be the first pilot ever. Ooh, I don't know. Very like, interesting. I, zero idea if that's true, because, um, it, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess technically speaking, whatever the first show was, the first episode, that was the pilot. But mm-hmm. in, in terms of in terms of sort of like, hey, let's make something, see if this gets picked up. Um, this could be the first pilot. So I, I'm thinking that like there is just a lot of stuff they didn't want to blow money on. Again, this is a B movie. It, it, it probably had one, one-tenth the budget of some other movie that was released that year, mainstream movie that was released that year. Um, but so I'm, I'm wondering if there's just budgetary concerns and also like the, you know, they didn't want to go through casting Jimmy Olsen, casting uh, Perry, casting Lex Luthor, making Metropolis if they didn't, if they weren't going to get anything beyond this. No, that's a really good thought. And like I read somewhere that this episode, this movie was later recut into two episodes of television. Mm -hmm. So so it does sound like they had um, plans beyond the big screen when they got involved into this project, because I think the show follows like it's 1952 to 58 or something like that. It's the following year. So like when um, 
you go this small of scale, it's like they have to be setting this up to be just like some type of episodic adventure. And I don't know, maybe there was some kind of thing where like, okay, we release this, see what people's response is like, and then maybe kind of figure it out what we do with the show, how we go forward. And they, you know, put something together on the cheap let it get out there, let people see it. And then, you know, after I'm sure a demand was created for more, they decided to release the show because you're right. They, all of the stuff like the, the bugle and all the, like Jimmy, all the other characters, they've been around since like the, the beginning of time mm-hmm. and stuff like that. You know, the, the building that was the bugle was the, the one building downtown, like the AT&T or something like that. They used to have AT&T logo on the side of it, but it's right. right it's right. You see it in the background on every Indians uh, or guardians game um, that plays on television. Right. So like the, the, all these people had been around for a while, but like, if you're not going to, um, if you don't know exactly like where you want to go with the property in, in the grand scheme of things, you might as well like get out there and test the waters a bit. And that does explain why this movie, is or this yeah this movie is so condensed you know why it does mm-hmm. feel so small and, and and you know what i think that kind of gives it a little bit a little charm to it that it's mm-hmm. just so different from from what we're what we would be used to in any superman movie tv show any anything else yeah definitely it does have this like very uniqueness to it and i mean if you were to see um you know, if you were younger and stuff like that, like a kid and the man of steel is your first uh, introduction to Superman going, going back on and watching this might be like, what the hell? Like Superman was actually like this at one point in time. Mm -hmm. But, but I feel like that, you know, everything has to come from somewhere. And if you see even like the old Batman stuff, and that is a world of difference to, to what it is today. Correct. Correct. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get to this here. Chama might as well do it right now. Um, I, I was really shocked as I was watching how much filler there is in a movie this short. There's a lot of people, a lot of scenes of people just walking around. Like they're the mole men just walking around the mob, just walking around looking for them. Um, (laughs) this could have been like about a 40 to 45 minute movie legitimately. Oh, this definitely could be that easily like, yeah, there's a lot of fat that is walking around chasing and stuff like that. I got some things to say about the chase way later in the episode, but, okay. um, that, that I did like, but, um, there's definitely some fat that has to be trimmed off of this. And in many ways, it kind of slows down the pace of the movie. Oh, a little bit, even, yeah. It definitely drags yes. It's 58 yeah. minutes and it has a drag point for sure. Yeah. And, and that's like why even when I got out of the, the viewing experience for as much as I did enjoy it, I was like, yeah, there's 10 to 15 could easily go off this movie, like without a doubt, like right out the door, 10 or 15 minutes could go. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so besides the length, um, what do you think that separates this? Um, what do you think separates this movie from, um, you know, from from contemporary movies or movies or even movies of the time from the 1950s? Either way. Uh, Okay, so yeah, so like you um, you hit on a couple things like the small like the smallness of it. Movies today like this would be so grand, like so goddamn mm-hmm. grand. And even like movies like The Dark Knight that are a, a more condensed superhero movie than even like than even superhero movies. Even that is 
much more grander in scale than um, something that we see here. Um, one thing, like I had to go back to kind of make a, a, another point about what I was saying about the, the, you know, the messaging of the movie is yeah. that in the, in the movies today it's the messaging is going to be infinitely more subtle than um, what, than what we saw here in Superman. Like you may get a couple of like, a couple of very direct lines in a, in a modern day movie like this, but it is definitely more of like a subtle thing in terms of like the, in terms of the, this kind of messaging in movies. And like, I, I'm struggling to, to think of an example of some of the subtlety because I, I don't really, I'm try, also trying to think of like a, a superhero movie that is allegorical for this kind of situation that's come out recently. But, um, <clears throat> But it just seems to me that like more contemporary mess, more contemporary movies have a more subtle messaging, um, and even like obviously like the effects are one thing that separates the um, the old and the new. The effects like are going to be like through the roof and cranked up to eleven, like no matter what. Mm-hmm. So um, so that is another uh, difference there, and also like I just like I feel that um, you know, the direction that um that they're going with the character you know the, obviously this kind of like you know cheesy kind of lighter thing um lighter take on the character that is something that is it's basically like non-existent like henry cavill's got a couple like lines where he's trying to be cute and funny but a lot of the levity like we had discussed is just like it's gone like in, at least in superman for now it's gone in superman and even even in a lot of marvel movies the 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 cheesiness is not sucked out because certainly they they they're okay with being a little bit tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. um, but it's it, it's definitely not as nearly as present. Um, it's 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 turned down a few notches even in Marvel movies. Yeah, exactly. Like Marvel movies, they might they would be funny, but the cheesiness of it is definitely turned down. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I agree with you on all that. Um, how about? This really struck me after, like, when I was actually writing this, um, this really struck me, it, it thought that entered my mind. How often do you see in a 1950s movie where the creatures are not the villains? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, not that often, never, very rare. Yeah, rarely, actually. Like, I, once again, can't even think of something that came out that long ago, or even in going into the 70s, where, like, the creature is adorable and not, like, the source of evil and stuff in the movie. That's a really good point. I mean, they, they you know, they don't attack until the end, and it's because they're provoked by, by an angry mob. But even then, they don't kill anybody. Um, so it's it's just an interesting sort of... It's just very, it was a very interesting sort of like, not, not that it was like a total 180, my goodness, but I, I bet you can count, I bet you can count this type of, you know, not necessarily superhero movies, but any, any movie where there's some kind of creature um, is, is the antagonistic source, whether or not they're a villain, um, you know, you mm-hmm. could probably count this type of movie on one hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I still, even after given a little bit of time, I, I can't really think of anything. You know, nothing like that. I mean, the the closest we, I think, like the closest from the time period is possibly Godzilla, and true. But I mean, Godzilla destroys an entire city, so it's like, <laughs> it's, you know, it's you know, the lesson is that like you know, obviously, the, it's allegorical for you know the atom bomb and everything else, but um, and, and war and all kinds of stuff in general. But before like Godzilla gets let let off the hook, he does destroy Tokyo. No, they, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's, yeah. But like, I, I can't think of another one. 
Yeah, like there have been a couple like Godzilla movies afterwards that were like somebody wants to maybe save the monster for science or whatever. Yeah. But the, the monster's still bad, you know. Like there's, I mean, the monster's still like like destroying stuff, doing I guess bad things, even though it might be just natural for them. Right. Um, yeah. Wow. Like that is such a that is such a good point. Like I mean, there's dude like there's movies like like midnight special where like agents are chasing after a kid and stuff that they think is going to be a problem but it's not it's like a father trying to save the son from being prodded and everything um but it's never this take where like you know hey by the way there's like these supposed the, the creatures are they're there and then like the townspeople become the bad guys usually like the townspeople are one piece of an of a kind of antagonistic pie yeah exactly exactly how about and how about this this was surprising too um uh, a very minimal amount of our protagonist of superman oh yeah we didn't get the first instance of him in the suit well we got it in the opening credits but as far as like the story goes it was 24 minutes in i think before he Mm -hmm. got the suit and then um he's clark for a while then it's a 10 minutes of a chase. And then he comes back as Superman, like with like the, the 40 minute mark, like, yep. I mean, within like 18 minutes or so left in the movie. So there was not a lot of Superman and like, yeah, even like, I guess even in like modern day movies, like, yeah, we're getting more of the people in the suits and everything like that. But, um, we never got anything like I mean, nothing like this amount of time. Like this is a pretty short amount of time mm-hmm. for somebody to like be in the suit. You know, it may be in like one of these prequel movies when like they finally become like the character in the end and like the third act and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I, I almost don't feel like I should count that. <laughs> like, this right. Is so, but um, yeah, not a lot, not a lot of suits and costume here. There, it's just a very interesting, again, just a very interesting sort of, um, sort of, um, I don't know, not a, again, not a twist, just like, um, I guess, I, I guess it's, I guess it's one of those things we're so used to the, this very particular conventions of superheroes now that mm-hmm. they're in the suit a whole bunch. I mean, my goodness, do the Marvel people ever take them off? Ever. <laughs> Some of them do not. It's gotta be uncomfortable, but, um, you know, so it's just such a, it's just such a, a different, con- you know, there was no convention for superheroes at that point in time. Not really anyway. No, not at all. Like, even Pattinson's Batman, like he's in the suit. He's probably in the suit the most out of any of the Batmans that we've ever seen. And like, it took, it, it took DC like this long to get one of their superheroes in costume for that amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. Um, so let's get into, we to get into the who, what, and why breakdown. The, um, nice. who are the key people of the production of this movie? Um, what makes this film important or noteworthy and why I picked it. And there's a lot of great trivia that comes out of this out of this movie. It's pretty <laughs> nuts. Um, so the key people in the and who are the key people in the production of this movie? Uh, we'll start with something that we talked about off the air. Uh, this is produced by Lippert, Lippert Pictures. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Robert L. Lippert, who produced The Fast and the Furious, comes up uh, once again. I'm going to go ahead and guess if we took if we took a stab at a lot of 1950s movies, they'd be produced by Robert Lippert. Yeah, he probably has a hand in it. When I was going to his Wikipedia page, the amount of movies that are on there for this guy, it is like none other. I'm telling you, like when you see like even people that act today and they have really big IMDb pages 
and stuff. Mm-hmm. It is nothing to like what these older producers had. They have yep. freaking like uh, ledgers and registries and stuff like that. It's insane. I mean, when you're shooting, you know, like Lippert Pictures, when they're shooting essentially, you know, they can wrap up a movie in like 10 days and they can mm-hmm. shoot in a month, like three movies. And then they're probably shooting more, you know what I mean? Like on multiple right. lots, shooting multiple, you could, you know, Lipper could get essentially 20 to 30 movies a year produced. Maybe 40. Easily. Like when you're like, when you are like a machine like that, like, yeah, you could grind that stuff out. Pretty nuts. So again, uh, Robert Lipper gets another mention here. Uh, this movie is directed by Lee Sholem. Uh, he's got he's got the best nickname maybe of any director. Uh, yep. Lee Rolem Sholem. He mm-hmm. directed over thirteen hundred shows and features um, without ever once going over the shooting schedule. Amazing, incredible, the, the, amazing. Like he deserves a fucking statue somewhere in this town just for that alone. It, it's it's every. I mean, how many movies ever? How many movies have you ever heard of going? under schedule, under budget, other than Clint Eastwood movies. Like, never. Usually everything is over budget and takes way longer to make. Yep. It's, that's pretty nuts that you could you could have your hand in that many projects and never once go over. Not, no, not hand in. Be in charge of that many projects and never once go over. That is fucking nuts. Yeah, like, do you, I don't think that that is ever going to happen again. Like, no. you might have, like, you might have people that, like, maybe meet the budget, meet the point in time, but it is, like, you're never having, um, who do it once, you're never going to have that consistency ever again. Like, it's never. It's crazy. Um, this is written by Robert Maxwell. Um, he also wrote and produced the Superman TV show. Mm-hmm. And more famously, he produced and wrote for Lassie. Um, it's really, like, where oh. this guy becomes famous. Um, produced, I, I think, most of the episodes, about half the ep- no, more than half the episodes, and wrote, uh, like, I mean, writing is, as you know, you you could be a writer on a show and only get, like, you know, like, four script credit, you know, writing written by yeah. credits. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I mean, basically, essentially, he had a hand in writing uh, a whole bunch of episodes of Lassie. Um, let's get to the actual stars here. Uh, George Reeves as Superman. I, I think that you can really see why he was the choice for this character. And, you know, while he'll always be, you know, you know, he'll always go down in Superman lore, he's obviously significantly more famous for uh, the movie that was produced about his life in 2006 mm-hmm. called Hollywood Land, where he was played by Ben Affleck. And mm-hmm. the fact that he was possibly potentially murdered by his lover. Yep, that's right. Yes, I know. They, they're throwing the theories of suicide murder and um oh god was there's just an another, accidental shooting too yeah accidental shooting yeah that's right it, like weird weird case of hollywood folklore out there really weird um and it's just it's just a very interesting it's it's very interesting that um you know the two longest you know the two longest serving supermen um both had very untimely uh, well, I guess I mean I guess Christopher Christopher Reeves' death wasn't untimely. It's just the accident that preceded it was yes. significantly unfortunate and untimely. So you had you know so you had like a little I don't know like a little Superman curse I guess. Um, yeah. Figures. I mean, but it, you know what? I think we broke it. Nothing happened to Dean Cain. Um, nothing <laughs> happened to Brandon Routh. Nothing's happened to Henry Cavill. So I think we've broken it though. Why can't? Something happened to Dean Cain. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. That's what we need to find out here. Yeah, or well, maybe that's what happened. He he became uh, he became a trumper. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And like God, we need to do everything to protect Henry Cavill. Like I I actually I enjoyed him as Superman. I know that everything is 
kind of sort of up in the air in DC. I don't even know if they know what they're doing, mm-hmm. but I would, I wouldn't mind seeing him again. So let's hope yeah. that he, um, you know, hope that he stays protected. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we had Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane. Uh, Phyllis Coates is still alive. Uh, she's almost 90. Um, years later, she would play on Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman. She would play Lois Lane's mother, Ellen Lane. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then um, that started up a tradition of the former Lois's playing yep. the current Lois's mother and everything. Terry Hatcher did it too. Yep. Very, very. I like, I like that little, you know, I like those kind of unofficial traditions in Hollywood where, yes. where certain productions bring back certain stars, you know, for whatever. Love that. Oh, definitely, dude. It's always cool to see like the, the faces of old make their appearances in like the new versions of whatever the old version was. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to include uh, I had to include really the next the next guy that um, that gets probably the most that's the most distinguished character uh, Jeff Corey who played Benson like the lead um, you know the lead uh, like the mob leader I guess yeah. um, so uh, Jeff Corey was a well regarded character actor mm-hmm. but he's considered one of like the best acting coaches in the history of film like that's where he made his bones like he's in tons of stuff but like he was like the go to guy for um, I. I I think he started in New York and then was based out of L.A. later. Um, so, like, coast to coast, he was the best guy to go to um, as an yeah. acting coach. Um, and this is amazing. After this movie, he was blacklisted by McCarthy. I know. I was reading that, dude. Fucking like, nuts. Nuts is that he was born Arthur Zwirling. And, like, he refused to give up names to um, McCarthy and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And they were just like, all right, fuck you. We're going we're gonna to blacklist the ever-loving shit out of you. And I guess they got it because he um, attended some communist party meetings, mm-hmm. so he, though he never joined. But that was enough to put that cloud yep. over his head. Yep. He didn't act for nine years before he came – or maybe it was even ten years before he came back in, in another movie. And then he went on to – again, he had a long, long career in Hollywood. So, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. McCar- he outlasted McCarthy. Right. He even made it. He was the janitor in Beethoven's second. So he made it even there like, into, the, into the 90s and yep. stuff doing the acting. Yep, absolutely. So so there you go. Those are the those are the, the principal, the key players in this uh, in this production. Um, there's yeah, obviously there's there's more people behind this than that. But those are your key ones. Um, so here's to me what makes this what makes this film really important um, in the grand scheme of B movies here. This is first off. This is the first DC movie. Yes, this is, this is it. Right. This is the originator, um, mm-hmm. and this is also one of the first, possibly the first, non-serial superhero movie. And so, in other words, you had Batman, you had um, the Phantom, um, right. you had some other characters that preceded, you know, the Superman movies and TV show, but they were all serials, as we talked about um, in our in our B movie opener episode. Basically, they they would pop up in five minute shorts, on yeah. in between movies, and this is the first one that is a feature length film. This that's is it. right. It's yeah, very, that's right. Very interesting. Yeah, they even, there's a couple of like little animated bits of Superman before, even before like the serials mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But uh, this was hands down the grand Mac Daddy first ever DC feature film and stuff like that. And just that, that itself is like a landmark as it is because, you know, DC basically controlled the comic book uh, movie market until Marvel came <laughs> until yep. Marvel came around and stuff with this whole MCU thing. But and like. To go and see like the very, very first installment of what has been, 
a juggernaut in terms of the entertainment industry, both television, film, like print, everything. It's it's pretty fucking cool, dude. Like to mm-hmm. go back and see like where it all started. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and this that's that's another reason why I think this is important. It's just a really fun. You know, you see the first again. There were serials and stuff, and actually, and actually, the first the first long serial that compi- that comprises a feature length, you know, story is mm-hmm. um, Captain Marvel. Is the, yes. is the first one, who is now called Shazam. That's right. Yes, it was that Captain Marvel. And that was yeah. in the 70s, I Oh, no, believe? this is the 1940s. Oh, it was in, in the 40s. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Okay. So it was, it, it was a 12-chapter serial. It, like, it, length, it, like, it ends up being like about 50 minutes long. Um, so like that was, the, that was the first one, essentially, that they made like a... They made a serial... I, I mean, I, it's hard to call it a movie, but I mean, it's a movie. You would have seen it in the movie theaters. It's the only way you could have seen it. Um, but it, it wasn't packaged together in one movie obviously like this one um but it is fun just to look back and and see how fucking far we've come with these superhero movies it's just it's fucking crazy i mean this movie looks nothing even even if you just take it 26 years later to 1977 superman how wildly different those two movies look I, I know they de- definitely like even the suit has its own little like differences and stuff like in the way that it looks like on the two guys like Christopher Reeve like to me just looks more of like a Superman. I'm not taking anything away from George Reeves here, but like mm-hmm. it's it's almost like they really like put forth. They, they got, you know, also very lucky too that, you know, the, the first Superman's son um, is a big, good looking, dark haired dude that you can curl his hair and stuff. But everything about it like uh, presentations of like the the villains like uh, love story elements like even like clark is still like like a little bit quirky but even like a slightly more quirky and stuff for like comic relief and everything yeah yeah exactly exactly um so so you know so i picked this movie um i i picked this movie because i realized i've seen i like i recognize you know I've, i've seen the movie hollywood land and that's like sort of my First introduction to George Reeves, um, uh, first introduction to George Reeves, and sort of like that you know that general story. But I'd seen like brief clips, um, little gifts of of the 1950 Superman TV show, just pictures here and there. I've never really, I've never seen anything pre 1970 Superman. So I was just like, okay, we have to like, we have to watch this. This is going to yeah. be an interesting sort of exercise to see what this you know what this thing's all about no definitely dude and i'm glad you picked it because i had never seen anything prior to the original superman either and like it's just really interesting to go back and like to to see notice the differences and stuff to see like the evolution of the character and everything and then to also like be entertained by it and to sit here and be like yeah this movie's pretty goddamn good for being you know 58 minutes it's like this was a just a really like almost like we'll talk about the the next movie in the next episode, but like surprise, like surprisingly entertaining and had a great time is almost like my theme for both movies. This is a movie that I would, that between you and me and some of our other friends, definitely cracking some drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's some other substances involved. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm guessing on your behalf. Yes. Um, yeah, so yeah, but, of course. <laughs> But, um, like, a bunch of people sit around, have a good laugh at it, but then, like, at the same time, like, not laughing at it because it's bad, just laughing at it because of, like, how, how wildly different it is, how, um, you know, how, how like, analog the, the, this, this film feels compared to later superhero movies, how out of, 
how just, you know, this doesn't even feel like a superhero movie. Like, it, it just right. doesn't. It, I don't know exactly. It, 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 in, in a lot of ways, it felt more like a Star Trek episode, like an old Star Trek episode, than it did gotcha. a superhero movie. No, I can understand where you're going with this, dude. And, like, it definitely has a feeling of, like, a like because a, in the in those days, and, like, you, you still see it in television and stuff, but, like, those, those shows and everything were, like, used to, like, teach people stuff while also entertaining them. And this was kind of like that and everything like this really felt like a an older show that's trying to get a message out that's doing it in the the way that it's you know designed to do it fits the mold and everything Mm -hmm. like that of the of the property and like it just really feel like everything about it just is in line with what i would expect like something like this but it also exceeded a lot of my expectations for sure for sure i mean just switch, um, change out Superman for Captain Kirk, um, mm-hmm. flop, um, you know, flip flop Lois Lane for Uhura, and make those make the Mole Men aliens, uh, one one faction of aliens, make the uh, the the mob the other faction of aliens, and you have a Star Trek episode. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> anyway, um, so let's get to it. Let's get to the standouts here um, for for this movie. So a standout performance. Shema, who is your standout performer from Superman? Okay, I want to go a little different here, and I really want to say, like, as great as George Reeves was, like, I could not, like, stop talking in my mind about Phyllis Coates and this portrayal of Lois and stuff. She's fucking great in it. And, like, one of the things that I really dig is that this is, like, a strong fucking woman character who is also, like along with like the strongest, most indestructible man, like in the world and everything. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, obviously like Lois isn't there to, um, to, to fight crime, but she kind of like straightens out Superman in the, you know, in the Lois and Clark relationship. Like she's definitely like the pants wearer in that relationship. And there's, and there's also like these just really, you know, interesting moments. You only get like a couple of them where, people are trying to be like misogynistic and maybe do some like lightweight mansplaining. And she's just like, no, like I'm right here. Like you talk to me, like he doesn't tell you, like there's lines where she is very, very direct with men that, um, you know, I just did not expect that. And that really took me by surprise. And she just had this really great commanding force on screen and proved to be, just the perfect compliment to Superman and a great addition to the movie overall. I, I totally agree. Um, it's one of those things like, wish you had more screen time, but again, this movie's not even an hour long, right. so not really sure right. like, where you'd fit her in, but she is very, very good. Um, you're right. Like, sort of, um, in, in some of the ways we talked about when we talked about The Fast and the Furious, the way um, uh, Connie was um, shortchanged a little bit, in that movie, um, Lois Lane is not shortchanged here. She oh. she gets full agency. Oh, she does. Yeah, she definitely, definitely does. And I, I think it, it fits so well, man. Like, and especially because when he is Clark Kent, he's just kind of like this stiff, like nerdy kind of dude. And for her to be as strong and direct as she is, it just, it really like it creates a great dynamic between the two of them. And then the way she is, even when Superman is around, it's almost like nothing's changed. So it's almost like she is the only person in the world who could check the strongest man yep. in the world. Yep. Totally agree. Totally agree. Excellent choice. I had to go with George Reeves. And I say that because obviously, I mean, he does a great, he's 
I think he's very good as Superman. And I could really see if this was if this is a modern Superman TV show, I can see I can see exactly how he fits the he fits the Clark Kent and Superman mold very well. And mm-hmm. I think if this was a modern TV show, he would be a big TV star. Right now. Oh, he, I really yeah, do. Yeah. He's got chops, dude. Mm-hmm. He's got the comedic chops. He's got like, you know, man's man kind of chops and everything like that. Like this is a person that like if we were younger, like we'd have the posters on the wall and everything like that, you know, somebody that we can idolize and everything. And like that's that's basically like what you really need to like play the part and stuff. And the fact that he does it so well for the 1950s and everything, like I thought it was great. Like it was in certain like in certain B movies and just in certain movies in general, I guess like there are just maybe sometimes where you could kind of see how like a, um, if they would have brought in the biggest star in the world, my God, it would have like made a difference. They didn't need to do anything here. Like this guy just had it all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, again, if this took place now, he would definitely be fucking jacked. Um, he'd be massive, <laughs> but, but like, it just, um, again, why would, this is one of those things that bothers me. Why would an alien that's super strong need to be fucking jacked? But yeah, true. Like, it doesn't, it <laughs> right. doesn't, doesn't matter. What is he going to do? Fucking lift trucks all day long. Um, but, but like, you can just, you know, you can, I can see 100% how he would be a TV star today. Maybe not like a movie star, maybe not an A-list superhero movie star, but in the same way that, um, that Anthony, Anthony Starr now has found his fame as, um, as Homelander and the boys, I could mm-hmm. 100% see George Reeves being that sort of TV star now. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's a really good comparison dude. like, you know, and I could see George Reeves, like even taking on those kinds of like the Banshee, sh- like sh- the sheriff and stuff like that and Banshee and everything. Like I could see him in these like actiony roles that require a little bit of personality where mm-hmm. you're not just like the body and stuff. Exactly. Exactly. How about um, this this movie? Surprisingly, laden with effects. Um, so, what was your what was your standout effect from this movie, dude? Like one thing that I actually maybe thought we were going to get more of was the flying. Yeah. But we only really got him flying the one time, and that's why my standout effects when he goes up and like saves the mole man and stuff like saves that. The like dummy. I, yeah, saves saves the dummy. That's right, and that really like interesting kind of appearance is the way that they made that whole thing look and stuff. Cause you know, like the, the moment were like standing on a dam. So like when he flew up, it was just kind of against like a black screen. So it's yeah. like, what did the moment jump up really high? And then <laughs> I, I know, I know, <laughs> but it was, um, but it was still really cool. And like, I, I am happy that they went with that route because I guess like I was kind of expecting, maybe I, I think this exists like at least to me in gif form where it's really just like it's like superman like hovering over like a spinning globe or he's just kind of like standing there and a bunch of stuff is going on in the background yeah there's, I, there's that and then there's um from the t from the 50s tv show it's like a the like rear projection kind of thing yeah. that's, that's just kind of zipping along behind him yeah yeah exactly so like the fact that they you know that i got a flying like a shot of him flying with imagery that I hadn't seen in GIF form. That was the, the big standout effect. I was like, okay, like it's got to happen at some point in time, you know, cause they could do like 
they could shoot guns at him all day long and he just stands there with his arms on his side and you know you see smoke and stuff but like to actually attempt the flying thing and to i guess pull it off as best they could to me that was the standout effect yeah yeah i mean yeah absolutely it certainly wasn't the um it certainly wasn't the mole men's ray gun um which apparently is a vacuum cleaner with some stuff taped onto it but yeah. um <laughs> no yeah but but um no, it certainly wasn't that, but uh, the flying, you know, that scene in particular, but I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to the the way that, like, he takes off. I think he flies twice, and the way he takes off is actually does not look bad. Um, yeah. It does not look bad for this point in time, and obviously that's, like, where they got to cut it. Like, they got to, once he gets pulled out of frame by whatever he's holding on to or whoever's suspending him, um, they have to like that's that's it. That's all they can show. But it it didn't look bad at all for that time. I mean, they didn't. That would have held up for quite a while, basically. Oh, without a doubt, man. Like, yeah, the way that they put that whole thing together and stuff, and just this simple acts of like of cutting and everything. It was something simple, but it was very effective and it worked totally. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Um, how about uh, standout direction or camera work? Okay, so I hinted at this earlier, and like mine is like it's a particular sequence in the movie, like the ten-minute-long chase sequence with um, the townspeople chasing the mole men. Mm-hmm. This camera work and direction during the sequence, I thought, was really fucking good because they made me give a shit about the mole man yep. in ways where I was just like, I was rooting for that dude and stuff. And they really got us to, to care about this particular character. They made sure that out of the two mole men that we saw, the one that was being chased was like the younger, more innocent looking one. And they really like pinned him up against every, you know, all these guys, they have guns. Then he's trapped inside of a burning freaking cabin that, I got to tell you from the outside, I would have thought that, that thing would have burned down in like 30 seconds, but he had a lot of time in there to, uh, to find his way out and stuff. And like the way that they kind of build this tension. And even though I, you know, with us being, you know, the, our age now in the year 2022, like I thought that, that this whole thing was done so goddamn well, it was long. And believe me, that is when I said there's some fat, that is definitely where I immediately go to when I think about trim and some fat in this movie. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they really like got me going really elevated the emotions. And like the entire time I was just like, what well, is like Superman going to save this guy? Like what's going to happen here? You know, are we actually going to see townspeople like killing this little kid mole man thing? Like I, I really didn't know what was going to happen. And like, and that, emotion and that kind of being on the edge of my seat just really took me by surprise i'm i'm with you on that i i echo that sentiment it was a surprisingly good little no it wasn't little like i said it was 10 minutes it was like one sixth of the movie um which when you think about that now if that if we had a chase scene that was one sixth of the batman that would be it'd be like a 38 minute chase scene <laughs> like, so long um or 32 minute chasing something like that um but um, yeah. So like, you're right. Like it was they. I, this is where, this is where you. If it just was, this just this is the point where it feels like a 1950s western. Where mm-hmm. like take out the fact that we're talking about the mole men. Clearly, um, uh, clearly the director, uh, um, Jesus Christ, Roland Scholem. Scholem. Um, clearly Scholem. If I, I probably should have probably should have brought up his IMDb as well. Guarantee you, he's done westerns with these types of chase sequences in them because it just it felt like it felt like he plotted it the exact same way that you would 
you'd have the one cowboy chasing down the bad cowboy or the yep. bad cowboy chasing down the good cowboys, whatever. Um, it felt the exact same way. And, it, you know, it, it's totally fine. It fucking works. It really does. Um, it really does, like you said, sort of heighten the tension and make you kind of like, especially considering we don't see Superman at all. It, you are the entire time like, oh, man, when's he going to come in and fucking save this guy? Right, exactly. Like, just such a such a left hand turn in the movie. Like, I, I I tell you, I just I did not expect a lot of the stuff, and the fact that they were able to pull me in the way they did was a very unexpected surprise. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll give it up to the very simple thing that I wish they would have done at least one more time um, when we get Superman's POV of one of his flights over the townspeople. I wish we would have had that one more time. Just, I'm sure it's just a camera on a rope and a pulley, and they're just zipping it along above everyone. And I wish they would have done that one more time. But yeah, I, the, the I one time you. they did it, it definitely was effective. You you get the faces of everyone watching as if they're watching Superman take flight because they they've apparently in this reality they've never heard of him before. Yeah, that was another thing too. That's right. Like he was almost like an unknown. Like no one knew who the hell he was. And then and if every other thing, everybody knows Superman. Is. Yeah. But yeah, but I wish they would have done that at least one more time. It would have been, you know, it's just a, it's just one of those things. Is it super, it's, is it that impressive now when you think about it? Of course not. But back then, definitely pretty impressive. Right, exactly. And like, you know, any type of like extra kind of Superman-y type footage is always, would always be welcome for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's Siskel and Ebert this bad boy. Thumbs up or thumbs down? And why? Oh, oh I'm two thumbs upping this all the way, man. Like this was... A lot of fun for just 58 minutes or so like i i enjoyed this movie this was a surprising fucking delight and i gotta say like um effects and time period aside this just was something that i enjoyed so much like i'm telling you like i i just could not be even more surprised that i had not seen this prior to you know prior to my viewing of it last night I am with you here. Two thumbs enthusiastically up. Um, we kind of talked about how last time we talked about how the Fast and the Furious is a, an interesting artifact of the time. This is more than an interesting artifact. This is like this is like a um, sort of a I don't know like the Holy Grail is not the, quite the right way to put it, but like this is like um, your Rosetta Stone for how yeah. they're going to do. There are seeds here. There are like the initial, the, the initial framework for how they are going to do superhero movies. I mean, mm-hmm. like the, the the blueprints are in place basically for for how we're going to translate into superhero movies. Um, you know, at least from the fifties on through basically until Super Spider Man One comes around. Um, right. Um, but I mean, they they really are kind of all. And well, there's some exceptions there, like Blades, an exception, but they all kind of have significant fingerprints from this movie on them oh definitely man like alter egos the you know the um the relationship the love interest and stuff having to conceal that who you really are from someone that you care about and everything these themes of the world and stuff and people not understanding the the power and everything and like uh even people like the townspeople turning on superman so quickly like they didn't know who the hell he was it's like a great fucking hero they don't understand him. They're just going to start shooting mm-hmm. at him and stuff. There's a lot of things that 
um, sprinklings and even things that are totally like in your face that are inherent in superhero culture, whether it be prints or to the screen that have lasted for so long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there you go, Siskel and Ebert, and uh, well, I don't know about Siskel and Ebert, but uh, Chapman Peg will give it two thumbs up. Uh, any any final thoughts before we reach our intermission? Final thoughts on this is just like I gotta tell you, dude, you made a really great selection here. I loved it. I'm like I gotta tell you, I'm just very very happy with this one, and I am even more excited to talk about the next movie. Absolutely, yeah. So am I. So am I. Definitely really excited to dive into that one. Um, and I'll just say, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll just wrap this, uh, this up here by saying it, it's 58 minutes of your time, folks. Go watch it. It's yeah. less than an hour of your time. Go watch it. It's worth it. It is. If you like consider yourself a fan of superhero movies, this is, this is like a must watch and yep. stuff like that. This, this is a must watch. This is something that I think everybody like everybody should watch this movie. And if you're not a fan, just so you fucking know where this comes from and just know that like what was trying to be done even back in the fifties, they're still like doing today. And like, it, it's great. It, it, I'm really like, I know it's just superhero movies, but like, I am like so fucking happy that this genre stuck around. It's dominance in the box office is a whole other conversation, but I'm very, <laughs> very happy that, um, that this, um, this genre is stuck around and it seemingly is only getting better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, uh, we're going to hit our intermission. Uh, go get yourself uh, get yourself another beverage, and then we'll be back to talk about Cast a Deadly Spell. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right, everyone, we're back from intermission. Uh, to talk about the 1991 HBO original movie, Cast a Deadly Spell, um, starring amongst others, which we'll get into this, starring amongst others, the late, great Fred Ward, Julianne Moore, um, a pretty fucking stacked cast, actually. Yeah. I kind of forgot how stacked this cast was. Clancy um, Brown, Raymond Cl- O'Connor, like, oh my god, it's great. Yeah, it's pretty nuts, actually. So, what were you... Now, I've seen this before, so my, my expectations were a little bit different, but... Um, but what were your expectations having never seen this before? Okay. So my expectations got broken into like two different waves. Okay. The first wave was when you had told me, you know, via Facebook messaging that we were going to be watching this movie. So like I, I had never heard of it before. So like when I saw the phrase, you know, to cast a deadly spell that we were definitely looking something in magic. There's no matter what magic is somehow yep. going to be involved in this. You know, I got it from the title. Then the second wave of expectations came when like I went to the Wikipedia page and like, I just got, I didn't do a whole lot. I basically just stuck in like the top half of the Wikipedia page. Got the synopsis. Movie. Yeah. yeah. The synopsis and stuff. And once I saw that um, one of the characters was named Lovecraft, things definitely became a little bit more in, into perspective as to far as like what to expect out of the movie. So I, once I saw that, I expected some Lovecraftian things. Um, the amount of which uh, I will say I did, I did not necessarily expect, but um, the fact that we were, you know, that I was anticipating some Lovecraftian stuff and um, this sort of like noir story, you know, which it clearly, clearly is, um, I sort of expected some of the elements that, that come along with that, like the, the femme fatale, like, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like or an organized crime element of some kind. Um, so like those were my my first two waves of expectations. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and again, I've seen this before, so I just, it, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I, I just remember how unabashedly weird this movie was. And it did not shy, it just did not shy away from getting as weird as possible. And I, I just, it's one of those things, as, we, as we've talked about before, I would rather any movie, if you're going to take a swing at something, take a big swing at it. And this movie yeah. takes several big swings at things and does it hit all of them no but it hits most of them <laughs> yeah and like i gotta at least i gotta at least give them credit for fucking trying because like this movie I, again once i found out that this was an hbo tv movie this sort of took me back to like the golden age of these hbo tv movies when i actually used to watch them no mm-hmm. less you know and this one came out a few years before i remember getting hbo for the first time because i yeah. big, my, the late shift and like those kinds of movies and like the mid to late 90s that was my first kind of in, in introduction to the hbo movie right. so like man like like if there was ever a place for like absurdity, the straight to HBO TV movie, a lost relic of our time. I mean, they, they still do it, but like I, I but not like this. There's a lot this, of this, right. It, the straight to HBO movies, HBO movies now are like they're nominated for Emmys. The, yeah, and, and you know, and it's not like they haven't like. So like the first, I mean, the first HBO movies come out like basically right after HBO is founded. Um, right. essentially and they and it wasn't like they weren't like serious i mean there's like documentaries and stuff like if you go through the list of um hbo originals there's documentaries and investigative you know movies like that so i mean mm-hmm. like it wasn't like they were just joking around necessarily that's not what i mean but like the, like when you think of like an hbo original now this would never ever be an hbo original movie this this no. would go this this is going straight to a smaller streamer, or it's going to Cinemax, HBO's you know <laughs> subsidiary. Yeah, this is definitely more of a, a Cinemax property, that's for sure. Yeah, like it seems like the, the HBO movies that they've made like in in recent years and stuff, and like I'm have a huge. Have, there's definitely some gaps in my like remembrance here, but like they are more. Like when they did Behind the Cop Candelabra, it was like this yeah. movie that, you know, wanted to be made, but it's just like they're not this is a movie isn't going to be in the theater near you and stuff for its obvious like subject matter and kind of the way that that subject matter was portrayed. But it was an important st- story to tell. So HBO made the movie and, and you know, and then I saw it and I actually enjoyed it. It's pretty or good. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely, dude. Like God, Michael Douglas, like, where the hell did you pull that one out of, you know? <laughs> and uh, when like when Larry David made his movie with John Hamm and stuff like it was just like, oh, OK, so they clearly have Larry David under contract. Maybe if they make this movie, they get out of five seasons of Curb or something. You know, there yeah. was just and so they I don't know. It's there's some kind of like you know, a difference, like a big time difference in terms of like the way that HBO picks and chooses the movies that they want to make. And for the early nineties, like this is just like the perfect, like HBO TV movies. Like, <laughs> and um, I'm going to get into like, when we get further in, I got some things like, you know, that I feel that this movie is, not too far away from being released in a theater near you, but which we'll get into that as we go. Okay, yeah, yeah. So then, fair to say that your expectations were, generally speaking, exceeded. Correct. So yes, I. This was fun. This was mm-hmm. so fucking fun, and like, 
this is one of these things that, you know, when you go through it, you probably kind of predict how certain directions and certain things are going to go and stuff like that. But it's just so fucking weird and great and enjoyable and it flows so nicely that like I really couldn't care less that I was able to identify Julianne Moore as like, you know, the potential big time kind of Benthetal character and everything mm-hmm. because it was just really fucking cool to see like this elements of elements of Lovecraft be integrated into this world so great. It's like, why did Bright not learn from this movie? You know, it's almost like where immediately where I went. And like I I just thought that this movie did such a great job of integrating these supernatural elements and for such a much more condensed story then then bright it just it really hit everything so well and did some things that bright did not do very great comparison um the the movie that bright could have been absolutely yeah, exactly. could have been with obviously with a better budget could have been more interesting visually but they decided to not go that direction um to its detriment and it, it's boy I, I think it's it's one of those things that like bright tries to play play its subject matter way too seriously and this movie absolutely does not um right but it but it doesn't and i think this is where like my expectations were exceeded because again i remember really liking this movie when i was younger like even though we are getting you know we're getting the tropes uh you know the, the the noir detective story tropes um in spades you know they're they're not played too seriously. Um, so, like, we're, we're not taking that part of the story too seriously. And we certainly aren't mm-hmm. taking the magic too seriously. Um, right. Even though, but but at the same time, we're not, like, going out of our way to make fun of it. It's, right. it's, it's there for, like, the right amount of comedic effect. Like, it's comedic seasoning on everything. Mm-hmm. And it's, right. it's played just at the perfect pitch of, don't take this too seriously. We're having some fun. But we're also not going to call attention to it the same way that um, one of these like more modern bad um, Seltzer and Freiburg spoof movies would. <laughs> right. And they call attention to it in the perfect fucking ways. So like in the you know, you, you just in the beginning, obviously, the first little bit is, um, you know, the woman on the Hippolyta, Hippolyte. Um, yeah, Hippolyta, Hippolyta. Hippolyte, it's Greek, it's Greek. Yeah, <laughs> Hippolyta, Hippolyta, I'm looking at it right now, Hippolyta. Hippolyta. She is on the building, you know, doing like the, the, the spell, kind of like the seance type mm-hmm. thing and everything. And like to me, you know, since it's Los Angeles, I'm sure that's happening right now. Like that's not anything new, a guy standing on a building or someone standing on a building, like saying a spell. Guarantee is probably happening right now in multiple buildings. But when you get into the story, like you, you can kind of tell that like it's different, you know, you don't really know what, and then you just kind of get these like little sprinklings of it, whether it be like the zombie bodyguard and mm-hmm. everything like that, you know, or even when um, the movie progresses and we go to the police station near the end, maybe like towards the end of the second act, the beginning of the third act. And we see the woman 
with the Ouija board and everything. And it's almost like, and then the cops are all around her, like, you know, sitting there, like, you know, kind of under the spell. Mm -hmm. And it was just like this reminder that like, Oh Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like this is everywhere. Like you hear people talking to him about like, Oh, why don't you use magic and magic is so apparent and all these other things, but you don't really see it all that much, except for just like these little bits kind of throughout the movie. And in bright like you got the full goddamn history of how everything is in the world today and stuff mm-hmm. like that and i will say one thing with bright um that i you know um they picked and you, you hit something like this too like in terms of the subject matter i just think that they picked the wrong subject matter like fairies and elves and stuff like that it's just like yeah i mean it's okay but it's, it's something that i don't think like a lot of people are like super into you know whereas yeah. this is like various horror stuff and magic. It's like this certain like universal kind of elements that a lot of people identify with and thus making it more easy for me to latch onto. Whereas where I'm watching bright and I'm like, what is Joel Edgerton's what? And like, okay, these guys are what, and how right. do they get to be here? And it's like, and I'm not really much of an, like I like the Lord of the Rings, but like I, I prefer other types of, fiction in terms of like you know like relics icons you know archetypes all that kind of stuff and they really hit it on the head with this like horror hp lovecraft stuff yeah it's more it's more generally recognizable magic and occult stuff right Mm -hmm. you know general you know the ouija board the general spells and then other occult stuff like we we see one vampire uh we we get the wolf man um you know which is I, that's to me that scene with um, uh, Charles Hallahan as the uh, as uh, Lieutenant Bradbury, um, yep. where he's where he's interrogating the werewolf is like the perfect sort of like is one of the one of those many scenes that I think is like a perfect scene for how yeah. they're not treating it they're not they're treating it tongue in cheek but they're also taking it seriously enough where he's he's really grilling this werewolf and the werewolf's there howling and whatever else. And as he's howling, Bradbury can clearly understand him. Like mm-hmm. it's as if they're having a dialogue back and forth. Right. And like and and you know, like the whole thing goes on like you would see in a regular noir movie. Some, you know, the 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 cop grilling the the bank robber, and then like, all right, throw him in the tank, let him cool off in there. And you see the the wolf getting you know, the wolfman getting hauled off, snarling and everything else. And like without you know, without like flinching, he's as he, you know, calls in Fred Ward, as he calls in Philip Lovecraft, you know, just Man, I hate full moons. Like it's, yeah, it's just right. a totally perfect. Then he then he says, "Oh, don't sit there. You're gonna get hair all over your suit." And it's yeah, yeah. like the perfect amount of this is ridiculous, but we're still gonna treat it as if it's like a real thing that's happening right now. Of course, yeah. Like God, that was so fucking perfect. Like you're right. He just comes out. I hate full moons. It's like written exactly like the way that an old detective noir would um, would be written. And if it wasn't a werewolf, it was like if it was drug dealers or prostitutes or something. The chief would come out and be like, "Man, I hate these skirts" or something like that. You know, like yep. whatever whatever term it would be. Like that was almost written like to the T, like one of these old film noir scenes would have been. But it just happens to be a werewolf. Yep. That and the and I love the <laughs> like I. I love the when we um, when Lovecraft is on the on the trail of Willis, uh, which we'll get to. There's some problems there for sure. Um, but when he's on the trail of Willis, I love when he's helping the guy work on his car. Are you flooding it? Have you tried doing this? And he's like, Nah, I know what it is. Those damn gremlins. And then yeah. literally, it's a fucking engine full of gremlins. Like it's yeah. Those those sort of like they're setting up the joke in a very earnest way, and it just mm-hmm. it pays off really really well. 
Yeah, what a cool little fucking set. That was one of the more like memorable in terms of like how these people interact with this world around them scenes and stuff like that. Yeah, no, it's literally a bunch of fucking gremlins just hanging out on the inside of a car. Perfect. Perfect. So, yeah, this this movie, even though like I knew I liked it, I forgot how much I liked it. Like that's that's where my expectations were exceeded. Like it's just one of those ones I'm like, I'm I'm so glad that we rewatched this. Like so yeah. fucking glad that I rewatched this. So what so what separates this movie from, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot that separates this movie. I think we have a lot to pick from. But, you know, in, in terms of like your sort of key choices here, what separates this movie from contemporary movies or even some movies maybe of, of the time, which not that long ago, we're talking 31 years ago now, but um, what separates th- this movie? Okay, so like for me, one of the biggest things that separates this movie from others is like the choice of dialogue. And when I said that, you know, like this movie is not far from a theater near you. I, this is where a lot of this argument comes from. And because this dialogue here, it's like, it's really just a matter of like doing a lot of retweaking. I don't necessarily think that there has to be like completely rewritten scenes. Cause this movie is, it's not even that far away from making somewhat of a appearance in a modern setting. But like, for me, the dialogue really does it. And it feels like, as a lot of older movies do that they're like really leaning into the creating like their own kind of language and stuff. And like, mm-hmm. while I'm able, cause like, you know, just because it's mostly like different slang expressions and different words for other things, I'm able to pick up on some of the stuff, but like they really like laid into this film's own language and stuff. And it's like almost any opportunity they had to, not call it money or not call it this or not call it that and call it something else. Like when Clancy Brown says this line, it's like, yeah, you know, well, it's on my nickel and all this other stuff. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, it's usually the expression is like, it's on my dime or it's on my dollar and stuff. But instead they, you know, inter- you know they pick something else to say to kind of like make it sound cool and stuff. And there's like a couple like examples of this spread throughout the film. But like, I feel that like in movies today, this, you're not going to lean in so hard to like creating like your own language to where it almost becomes super like, um, like it's English, but it's like not at the same time. Like Juno had all these like kind of funny terms and everything like that for stuff. And occasionally like a movie shows up where, um, you are getting a whole bunch of like unusual terms for stuff. Like in hall pass every five minutes, the guy says, Oh, have you ever heard of this? Well, Oh, it's like this, 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 and this, you know, that's, you get those every now and then. But I think that like movies today, if you're doing like this kind of story would be a little bit more grounded in terms of like the language. I think it would be a little bit less like we're trying so hard. Um, so that is like definitely like one difference, there's some other, I guess, like elemental things that might be different in terms of um, Willis and the cross-dressing scenario. I, I'm not exactly positive as to what yeah. that was, but like I feel that that might not be in here or might be told differently. So like there's some like little things like that, that I think would be redone in a, in a modern setting. Yeah, for sure. That's that one is a little, again, I, I'm going to get to that to Willis slash Lily um, played by Lee Turkison in a little bit. Um, that's it's, it's, it's not that it's not that they wouldn't do this in a modern movie. I think they would do it differently is how I'll say it. Okay. Um, yeah. But, but no, you're, but you're right with the, with the language stuff. 
Um, you know, but when you when you are trying, I think it's just a product of what they were going for the nineteen forties mm-hmm. kind of movie speak. But also, we have to we have to we have to touch in magic and Lovecraftian language. You know, this mm-hmm. eldritch horror language, which makes it a really interesting sort of um, you know stew. Um, so I agree with you there. This is also something that that really kind of stands out. Obviously, like the noir movies, you know, basically pop up had been popping up since like the seventies, basically, um, you know, post, um, you know, post 1950s noir movies pop up every now and then. But it, I just find it very interesting that this movie went, leaned so far into it really before that boom that happens around the time of like following and mm-hmm. some of the other, um, you know, even Mulholland uh, drive a couple years earlier, it sort of precedes all that. I, I yeah. just find it interesting that they, they could have told any story with like a Lovecraftian, um, you know, tilt to it. And they went with that um, several right. years before it really takes off, which is just interesting choice. Um, I, I think it's the correct choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just in and of itself, I, again, like Lovecraft, whether it's a direct adaptation or just inspiration, um, they've, you know, obviously it's been around forever. Like the, the whole of John Carpenter's, career has been inspired in some way shape or form by Lovecraftian stuff but this is like the first one I can remember that like we're gonna put a character in the story named Lovecraft we're gonna Mm -hmm. name Cthulhu we're gonna name uh, I can't remember the other demon or the the, the other uh, old one that they named and they named the old ones like which is what they were called Um, I don't remember any other movie at this point in time or previously going so far as to like this is our inspiration it's hp lovecraft yeah they went as much into the lovecraft thing as you absolutely possibly could and stuff and like and it was awesome because for as much as fiction film tv different directors and writers owe either like owe a lot of their careers or get a lot of their inspiration from lovecraft i don't really feel that wherever that the guy's ever really gotten like a kind of like a proper shout out and that might be because of his own personal issues and stuff (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) correct um but like this was by far and away one of these ones where it's like almost like a celebration of his work um just told in this like in this noir setting and like i i feel that the story could almost work with just about any type of setting but the noir thing and like you know the, the everything kind of centered on the Necro, necrom, necronomicon necronomicon yeah necronomicon necronomicon like it's like it, it just was worked out it's like okay we got all these elements we got this 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 and this and like what if the whole thing was about like somebody stole the necronomicon and like how and what happens a guy's hired to find it you know it's so like i i guess like out of the out of all the ways that one could do the story they, they landed on a really cool one and this movie just really goddamn unique. Like you just don't see shit like this, like at all. And like, and I was very happy to see like the celebration of this, like this literature and like these characters and, and all like the Lovecraft stuff. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And like, it's one of those things like you can, this is where like, it's one of those things where I can, I'm pretty good at separating the art from the artist. Mm -hmm. Lovecraft, a racist, anti-Semitic piece of shit. Um, and he died in poverty and probably the way he deserved to die. So it's fine, but you can't deny it. It wasn't that he was, he wasn't the first person writing this as as we call it now, Eldritch horror, 
Um, he wasn't the first person writing it, but he was maybe the most prolific and the most inspirational person, or the person who inspired the most, um, you know, copycats and um, inspired mm-hmm. like the the ongoing sort of uh, the Cthulhu mythos and all kinds of other stuff. Um, it's like important to recognize that like he has a significant piece of American pop culture, especially you know what I think he died in the '30s. So like especially early American pop culture, his fingerprints are all over it. It just mm-hmm. he just happened to be a terrible human being. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't sort of enjoy the the weird shit that he wrote about because it's weird, it's unique, and it, it it is it is interesting how well it's slotted into this movie though. Yeah, it really is. Like all these, and I mean they just and, and every angle almost like any opportunity. Like there's a Lovecraftian thing. Like every fucking couple of minutes and stuff like that. I mean, you're getting so goddamn much of it and stuff like, and that's, that is something that I think is like really fucking cool about it. Like other movies don't like, you know, in the mouth of madness, we see like this, you know, kind of like mixed CD of a carpenter's like favorite Lovecrafty and stuff, but it's still like a, a John Carpenter movie, you know, like Sutter Kane, all that kind of stuff. Like this goes like right to like the heart of it and everything, which is and instead of, you know, obviously like it's not HP Lovecraft, like the guy, we're not going into like biopic territory here, but like the, the name is used. So it's, it is, it's really just like a fucking great celebration and nod to like all these cool little weird fucking things that that dumb race asshole created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the in the mouth of madness is a good i'm glad you brought it up like the the touches of the lovecraft stuff are like the book titles um the name of the town um but but even then it's sort of um the sutter kane character is supposed to be stephen king and Mm -hmm. the way that um you know the way that um sutter kane and the town is presented is very much a stephen king sort of invention you know everything happening the the town's called hobbs end and um, everything happens there in the way that everything happens, like in Castle Rock or Derry or, you know, in Maine, essentially. Right. That's right. Yeah. And like the um, just the way also do like I didn't think that we would actually like get Cthulhu, like to actually get to see that on, mm-hmm. on screen and everything. I thought it was just going to kind of be this tease and stuff, but they actually went there and like. It's, Cthulhu hasn't made like that many appearances on screen, so this has to be like one of a couple, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think I, this one, obviously, for, again, I, I totally, I actually kind of forgot. We'll get to that. I'm going to get to that scene a little bit later, but I totally fucking forgot that we actually get the, um, you know, this ver, you know, their HBO's version of Cthulhu, um, mm-hmm. and like more recently, I told you that that. Kind of um, good, good enough for streaming, but probably should never have been released in theaters. Movie with Kristen Stewart, um, Underwater has Cthulhu. Oh, it does. Okay, yeah. I gotcha. Yes, that's right. I heard about that. That's yeah. right. Oh, one other thing that's different from this movie and contemporary movies is there's no way in hell that the plan will be foiled because of um, a guy sleeping with a 16 year old. Like, that's never going. That's <laughs> never going to happen. Another, another, um, another interesting and sort of like. You can sort of write it off for it's a, it's supposed to be about the forties, and mm-hmm. you could kind of write that off. There's tons of movies from the nineteen forties where the you know the protagonist you know, the the female interest is like nineteen or eighteen. Right. I, right. So I get it, but certainly um, we're not gonna we're not gonna explicitly like congratulate like a thirty year old man for sleeping <laughs> right. with, with a sixteen year old girl. Now Alexander Powers is like twenty five at this point in time, so it's not like it's 
that I mean, she's clearly visibly not 16 but right the the implication of that is it's not great right the whole they're gonna build a statue for you. you're gonna be the you're gonna be a hero it's like okay like that probably not gonna happen in in, in um in a modern setting right right exactly <laughs> all right so get gonna get into the who what why breakdown here um starting with the who um this is this is top to bottom filled with stars um obviously acting but also like people the people in production and and behind the camera so we'll start there uh cast a deadly spell is directed by martin campbell who is a big time director he has yep. two bond movies to his name uh two of my favorites golden uh golden eye and casino royale amongst others and a ton of a ton of action movies with a-list actors so mm-hmm. martin campbell definitely has the bona fides um this is produced by Gail Ann Hurd, better known as one of the main executive producers behind the Walking Dead universe. Yep. Um, and very early in her career, she was the producer of a little movie called The Terminator. Um, you've probably heard of it before. I think and, so. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> do you know do you know where she gets her her general start in the business? Let me guess. John Carpenter. <laughs> no, but I think I mean think very recently. Star Wars? She is Roger Corman's executive assistant. Oh, really? Yeah. No way. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's really recently. Yes, is this in last week? Yeah, yeah. no shit. <laughs> so there you go. Like she is she was um she was one of his like most trusted executive assistants and you know eventually became a, a producer, basically not like on his word, but you know, that's that was that was her doorway into becoming a producer. Interesting. Very interesting. She's and Still going with The Walking Dead. Still going with The Walking Dead. All the, like, the four Walking Dead shows that are currently on. Yeah, that's right. Or three, however many there are. But, uh, so, this is written by Joseph Doherty. This is the one person who's not really, like, of any particular note. He's just a writer who's been working. He's still working. Working consistently for about the past, you know, 35 years or so. But nothing of, there's nothing that stands out other than, like, he wrote and produced episodes of, like, a lot of episodes of, like, Pretty Little Liars. But... Yeah, he did. Um, he did write one of my all-time favorite TV movies called The Pirates of Silicon Valley. It's oh, about yeah, yeah. Um, the Bill Gates and yep. Steve Jobs and everything like that, and how Microsoft ripped off Xerox, and then or just sorry, Apple ripped off Xerox. Microsoft ripped off Apple. It was like one of those kind of movies, which um, I got to say, like for a TV movie. I, I kind of enjoyed that. Noel Wiley and Anthony Michael Hall's Jobs and um, Bill Gates. Was that also an HBO movie? That was a TNT movie, I believe. Okay. Like, yeah, I, I, if it was HBO, like, I could easily be wrong on this, but I think I saw the movie first on TNT or TBS. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So uh, let's and then let's move on to the cast here. Uh, the now late great Fred Ward as uh, how or as Harry Philip Lovecraft um, just absolutely knocks it out of the park. I couldn't. This is again. We we've talked about like this type of character that Fred Ward always plays. And mm-hmm. not that he's not that he was not that he was typecast necessarily, but he is so good at playing these characters with a lot of um, grit and rough around the edges. He's so good at it. He was oh, he's so got good the at voice. It. He's got the look. He's got the fucking chin for it. Like even the way, even the way he kind of combs his hair and stuff like that. Like he's just got this, you know, like just sort of like grizzled but still kind of like, you know, clean cut, charming, leading man kind of guy. It's this, it's a rare, like there are some rare things that just kind of combine so perfectly with him that you don't see all the time. Feels like an old school tough guy before, 
um, all of your before all of your before, really all of your action good guys and bad guys um, found the weight room. Um, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, he yeah. just feels like an old school movie tough. Mm-hmm. Definitely, dude. Definitely. Uh, we have Connie Stone being played by a very young Julianne Moore. Um, right. Just Julianne Moore looking fantastic. And uh, I'll, I'll get into Julianne Moore here in a little bit. But um, this is as I'm going down the list here. She's fucking great. There's I, I don't count a bad performance amongst anyone here. That I'm gonna that I'm gonna keep naming. No. So I'm just Julianne Moore, fantastic. Uh, Harry Borden, played by Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown was born to be a fucking villain. Uh, he's so fucking good. Um, right. He's fantastic. Amos Hackshaw, played by the fucking great David Warner. Um, you know, better known from The Omen, Tron, uh, Star Trek: The Undiscovered Country, a thousand fucking things. He's still working. Um, mm. David Warner, always great. He was fucking fantastic. Um, Olivia Hackshaw, played by Alexandra Powers. Um, she had a run here at this point in time where she was like in Dead Poets Society. Um, this movie, I want to say, oh gosh, I know I'm missing another actiony type movie. Um, a couple actiony type movies in here, but she, 2001 hits, and that's her last. That's her last screen credit. Interesting. Yeah, I remember seeing like the Dead Poets Society. I was able to put her. In, in Dead Poets Society, like some of the other work she had done, I'm just kind of like I, I couldn't really put her in those movies. Right, right. But she has she has a run here where she's definitely, um, uh, definitely like an it girl at this point in time. But um, just I don't know, 2001 hits and she says she's done. So whatever. <laughs> so, and then we have uh, Larry Willis slash Lily Searwall, I believe uh, is the anagram, um, played by Lee Turgeson, better known later as. Um, can't remember his character's name in Oz. Um, that he was in the, uh, he was Terry from Wayne's World one and two. Um, oh yes, yep, yes, Terry. That's right. And he's and I swear to God, I'm the only human being who's ever seen it. But he is the older brother Chet in the Weird Science TV show. No way, that is totally right. Yes, yep. I remember. I remember the fucking show on USA and everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. And he's also. Um, the asshole prison guard from Orange is the New Black, the yep. second and third seasons, I believe, he comes mm-hmm. into the play. He's the real sick, twisted asshole. Yep. But th- that guy, yeah, he's totally Terry in Ween's World. I, I knew I, I just couldn't put that face um, yesterday, when, or two days ago when I was watching it. Yeah, yeah. Lee, Lee Turgeson has been, has had a long career, a uh, long character acting career. Um, and, uh, yeah, in this movie he plays, This is this is the one where I'm just sort of like, I think this character would be done differently, but I don't think as different. Like, uh, so okay, so the 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 sort of twist here, and it's not really a twist. Um, we were introduced in the beginning to um, to this uh, this sort of femme, femme fatale character named Lily, um, tall blonde woman who's clearly Lee Turgeson, and and again, if you're unfamiliar with Lee Turgeson, Lee Turgeson is definitely a man. Um, so it's a it's a cross dressing scenario. And I, I, I sort of get where they were going with this in terms of like, because I'm, I'm trying to think of this movie in 1940s terms um, mm-hmm. and how they're, <coughs> excuse me, uh, 40s and 50s terms and how there was like sort of this like, that's like the, the sort of like, um, this is like before like the drag queen culture actually existed. I gotcha. You did have like people who were sort of like because she looks kind of like Lana. Um, 
Oh god damn it! The actress from this point in time, um, Lee Turkinson or Lily is supposed to look like Lana. Fuck, Lana Turner. Okay. Um, from this point in time, and that was sort of like early drag queen culture in in like the the sort of gay underground forties and fifties. That okay. a lot of these, a lot of they're before like the before like the trans identity really like formed. This was mm-hmm. sort of like what it was. So like I gotcha. I get it. I just think that they would have gone. I think that they would have gone if this movie was made today. They would have gone with an actor who was less visibly masculine than Lee Turgeson. Yeah, he looked a lot like Jack Lemmon in Some Like It Hot. Yes, like he looked very, very similar to that. So yeah, I, I, I could still see this direction um, being going this way or whatever. And I actually think that if they went today, it might be a. Um, it would be a trans actor today. I, yeah, yeah, yes. I can guarantee and, you, but I don't think it would be a mistake to have just a male actor play this role because that's kind of the point of the mm-hmm. character. But yeah. they, it, but it's just handled a little clumsily because it was 1991. Right, right. I feel that they might be able to make a better statement or to maybe educate people better on this particular like corner of LGBTQ history. Um, I, I just think that like out of all the stuff that went into the movie, this was the storyline that I don't think got as much attention as some of the other storylines did. Right. Exactly. It's um, if it gets more fully developed, there's probably a little bit more to say there, but it doesn't. So it just feels like a, it feels like a very odd sort of loose hanging thread. Is how I would yeah. sort of. It just doesn't quite fit everything else that's going on. Yeah, it's a very like it's like an unusual spike almost. Like they're mm-hmm. they're going for a spike in some way, shape, or form, but it's like um, it's one that you know for the '90s, like probably has a lot of spike value to it. Like, oh my god, this guy was it's a woman the whole time, you know. But mm-hmm. um, nowadays, and especially with the way the culture has changed in in the country and stuff, and it is currently continuing to change. I, I just think that like um, it would have been done like a little a little bit differently. I I wouldn't be surprised if if it was done today if it would be gender flipped if it was good point if so they went with um, a female actress pretending to be a man yeah that's another good point yeah that could actually I could see that too definitely it might be a little bit more to um it might be a little bit more to like you know kind of d- develop there and stuff and maybe yeah. be less of a spike I guess yeah exactly um. And, and and I think the reveal would have been a little bit more shocking as <laughs> with Fred yeah. Ward punching, um, knocking a character out. But um, <laughs> so uh, let me move on here to the um, so like the what what makes this film important in the scheme of in the grand scheme of B movies. And I, I don't think this isn't one of those like this isn't like a landmark B movie in the same way that uh, Superman of the Mole Men is. But this is I think this is a really interesting the thing that we talked about when we got to the to the more modern B movie and how, mm-hmm. um, how Hollywood kind of like hastens its own decline. This is one of the early examples of like, we have a new service that is going to take on one of these is going to be the landing spots for one of these B movies that we're, we're just, we're rapidly running out of space for in the, in, mm-hmm. in the multiplex. Like you're right. I think this movie is a couple of hairs away from being an actual in theaters movie, but this is one of those things that is very clearly, better suited to a new TV or newer at this point TV service mm-hmm. than, yeah. than putting it in the theaters and letting it, you know, gross, probably not a ton of money. 
um, letting it grow as like a, get you know get that cult status. And you know, like so HBO does two of these movies. There's this one, and there's a, a follow up called Witch Hunt. Um, at this point in time, a couple years later, Showtime actually has a series called Roger Cor- Roger Corman Presents. Yeah. And yeah. after a couple years, basically after you know, Cinemax had its reputation when we were younger as Skinemax. Right. But once it sheds that sort of reputation, Cinemax then becomes sort of your landing spot for BTV and B movies. So right. this is sort of like one of the fir- not the first, but one of the first first of these of these types of movies that goes straight to a new service. And if this thing gets made now, guarantee we see this on Amazon Prime or Netflix. Yeah, exactly. This is one of those ones that's like, you know, buried beyond the um, the, the first page or the first couple of like the first row of movies. Like you're going to have to go scroll and do this one and everything. Yep. And like, yeah, man, like, you know, HBO was new at some point in time. Like, it's just weird for me to think that HBO at one point in time was something that wasn't around. And like, you know, these are you know, it, it kind of sets up a a place for movies like this to go, you know, and mm-hmm. if you're, if you're not going to go into the, the theater and you're not going to end up on NBC's movie of the week, like you now have a, another station where you could see movies that like you maybe have a little bit harsher language, maybe that have blood and stuff like that. And like shit, that's not going to be on your regular TV and everything. And it's good mm-hmm. that, you know, places and places exist for projects like this to find a home at absolutely absolutely actually actually, you know what this not even a streamer i think this would have been like a tnt movie oh god yeah this would have been a tnt movie um in more recent times yeah (laughs) Yeah. god they do (laughs) but but yeah it's it's just um it's just it just happens at an interesting time i bet if this movie comes out in 1986 let's say it goes to the theaters and it probably gets fucking slaughtered. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're the eighties. Like, I don't know the whole like noir detective stuff doesn't really have a spot in like the big 1980s culture. Everything's just bigger and crazier and more blockbustery and stuff like that. And yeah, I'm just, I personally am not seeing a, enough to be like a landmark horror movie. And you're right, like whatever, I'm sure, you know, in the 80s and everything like that, you know, just pick whatever weekend to put this thing up against. It would have gotten, you know, hacked to death by, you know, Jedi or Empire or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's there's just, like economically like the HBO thing is just the best place to, to put this movie. For sure. For sure. Um, and so I chose this simply for two very simple reasons. One I wanted to watch a Fred Ward movie. I truly did. Um, he's mm-hmm. one of my all-time favorite actors, and his passing was one of those things. I'm like, well, I gotta find, I gotta find a Fred Ward movie that we can do. He's been in tons of these types of B movies, um, and I thought this would be more fun than a little bit more fun than Remo Williams, which is still actually like a fun sort of, you know, a very unique type of action movie. But this is, this is so unique that like. Even though, even though, like this is like a, a today type of movie, it would go to a streaming service. I can't imagine that you and I could walk into Netflix, walk into Amazon, and go, "We got a heck of a movie here for you." Imagine Lovecraft in a 1940s detective story, and no one yeah, would hear I, that pitch. No, not at all. Especially because Jordan Peele comes to HBO and he's like, "Hey, Lovecraft." series and they're like okay we'll give you some money no you're not making any more after the first one so like if jordan peele isn't 
turning Lovecraft and making it into a cultural phenomenon, I'm not necessarily seeing a lot of other people that are all of a sudden going to do it. You know, we'll always see Lovecraftian elements, you know, in movies and television shows sprinkled throughout the course of time. But like to go like specifically like that, if Jordan Peele's not doing it, no one is. In fairness, it's Misha Green. Is oh, the showrunner sure. of Love, Lovecraft Country? That, yeah, that's right. I, he's it's got his a it's small his production company, but yeah, yeah, right. it's Misha Green. And in, also, in fairness to HBO, I I've enjoyed that show quite a bit, but it's fucking again. I appreciate huge swings. Um, it takes a bunch of huge swings and does not land them. Yeah, I I enjoyed. I, I don't even think I actually finished it to be honest with you. I think I got like halfway through and something else premiered and just kind of sucked the steam out of those sales. But I remember being blown away by the first couple episodes. And then as it got on, I was just, I don't remember having the same, like, Oh my God, I got to see the next episode as I did when I watched the first one. Yeah. It's, um, there's some super weird moments with Abby Lee's character, Christina, I think is her name where she reenacts on herself, the Emma Till death for some fucking reason. Um, and then there's the whole episode, which I, was like bizarre and kind of entertaining in its own way, but with, uh, with actually that character's name was Hippolyta Freedom Freeman, um, where she's like traveling through the multiverse. Um, like it's, it, it, it's, it, it's a huge swing. It was a huge swing. It was visually impressive, but it definitely did not land. So I'm not yeah. shocked that that, that that show didn't get picked up for a second season. The, however, Misha Green's plans for the second season were really interesting. Like the, um, it, it it like it kind of furthers like this weird like more magic spilling into the world and mm-hmm. like the middle of the country is like entirely like the from like virginia through like mississippi or something is entirely like overrun by zombies oh no shit that kind of it was the idea was really interesting but i can understand why hbo was like mm, one was enough <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, David Simon, you want to make another show in Baltimore? <laughs> seriously, seriously. So yeah, it just um, I, I'm I yeah I just, I just the, the reasons for going for after this particular movie were pretty simplistic, um, but I do kind of hope that there's some I don't know in the in the near future we have to watch Remo Williams because it's fucking bizarre. And, oh, of course. And um, we could talk a lot about the weird Asian um, uh, the Asian um, stereotypes that are happening in that movie too. It's bizarre, but yeah, it's still kind of fun. Yeah, believe me. Anytime we could pay homage to Fred Ward, I'm all about it, dude. This was like one of those like Ray Liotta passed away today. I, I know. Like, Jesus, like you know, two back to back like two actors that I've two watched on. Yeah, like, and have watched like you know them on screen for years, like my entire fucking life. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And it's like, it, it just kind of hits you and stuff. You know, is there 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 are just there's somebody in the entertainment industry dying just about every day. You know, and some of them like I I have no idea who the hell they are, but when it's like people that you've watched and like appreciated on screen for as long as. I have Fred Ward and Ray Liotta. Like it just, it kind of gets you, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like the, um, as we're recording this, the, like the, one of the founding members of Depeche Mode died today. But as someone who's not like, you know, I I appreciate what Depeche Mode is. And like, I, you know, I've jammed their songs before. It's, it doesn't like hit me the same way as again, watching Fred Ward in several of my favorite movies, Ray Liotta in, in like playing some of my favorite parts of all time in some of my mm-hmm. favorite movies, that's different. 
Yeah, then you're you're a hundred percent right on that. The 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 Pesh mode thing was exactly what I was thinking about too. Yeah. All right, so let's go to our standouts here. Our standout performance from Cast a Deadly Spell. Who do you have here? Man, I I just I got Fred Ward here, dude. I fucking love the hell out of this. This was everything Fred Ward and something so cool and unique, like all at the same time. I loved all the, the running joke about him giving the wrong business cards and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. That was fucking fantastic. And what's really interesting is like at the story's core, it's really about a guy like accepting progress because the entire time he's been so against using magic and it's not his style. And he, there's this great line from Clancy Brown about like how like, Oh, you know, you keep doing this. Somebody will have to send you 30 cents or 30 cents to send you a postcard or mm-hmm. something like that, you know? And like, I kind of took that line as, you know, very, very foreshadowing of like the future and stuff and people who don't have emails and stuff like that. And like, you know, the amount of hassle it is to go to the store and, send them buy a stamp and buy a card and yep. all that kind of shit, you know? So, um, and you know, he goes through this adventure and in the last scene of the movie, he's finally like willing to take some of Hippolyta's, you know, crazy punch and stuff like that, that she's going to give him to help, you know, get him, get him better. Yeah. So like, I thought that that was this really cool and unique way of telling the story about just like this guy, like accepting progress and stuff, you know, and will he go use magic in his detective work? Who the hell knows? We don't need to know that. We just need to know that by the end of the story, he is, has done an arc and he does a complete and cool arc. There's cool fucking lines. He's really great. It's entertaining. There's, there's fights like it. It's awesome. Like it is just really fucking entertaining. Yeah. Oh yes. Yes. And you know, it's really, I mean, Fred Ward, I I literally did not pick, pick Fred Ward simply because like, it's we're following him almost the entire movie. Like he's almost in every single scene mm-hmm. um, uh, or shouldn't say every single scene, but like he's, he is the main person in every single act. He's probably in what, this is like a 96 minute movie. I bet he's in 79 minutes worth, 78 minutes worth. Easily. Um, yeah. Easily. So, so I, I only reason why I did, I'm, so I didn't pick him, but I'm just going to back you up on all this. Um, just like the, the, the running jokes are perfect. The way he plays those running jokes are, is perfect. Um, the, 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 you know, the way his version of the, of the struggling detective is perfect. And you're right. Like he, he, as we get, we talked about someone that has like a very old timey movie star quality. It really works for him as someone who is resisting progress, who is resisting change. Mm -hmm. And you could, you know, like the, so the second movie, Witch Hunt is definitely, um, magic is a stand in for, um, and the movie title should give it away for communism. Um, oh, yeah. And the communist witch hunts. Um, so like magic's a stand in for that. And I think that you could easily, it's, it's, it's obviously a stand in for progress and technology, right? Like it shouldn't be shocking that um, the, the final ceremony takes place in, in what would be a suburb or what's going yeah. to become a suburb. So like we're, you know, we're, and at this point in time, it's 1948 in the movie. So we're about like about 10 years before the suburbs in Los Angeles at, well, I mean really all over the country, but um, especially in Los Angeles, really began to become a thing. And, but, you know, so it's not surprising that the magic takes us to where clearly the future is heading. Right. Um, so that's not, a, that's not a shock at all. Um, and, but like just the way Fred Ward plays it is absolutely perfect. Just this guy who is stuck in his own, is stuck in his own, in his own ways. But, you know, you're right. At the end, there's at least sort of the willingness to change somewhat. Mm-hmm. 
Right, exactly, dude. You make, you make a great point about the suburbs, man. Like, those fucking plots of land that they have were massive. Those are easily three houses right now. Like, those were the, the, like those L.A. suburbs do not have that same kind of land um, land offering as they mm. did in the 40s. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, I can I can imagine. Um, <laughs> so you went with Fred Ward, and I went with – There's, I think there's plenty of choices here, honestly, that you could have picked from. Um, so I went with Julianne Moore and here's why this is a, like a, this is amongst one of her first, this is like one of her first like feature roles at this point mm-hmm. in time. She's like 30 or 31. Um, and she had been in stuff previously, but like always like sixth build. Um, and like the movies that it, she, she had done at this point really weren't like big movies and not that this is a big movie, but this is like clearly like the stepping stone to stardom, right? Like this is one of those stepping stones. And yeah. she's great. She plays the femme fatale really well. Um, she's definitely a little bit too young for Fred Ward, but I think she's trying. She's supposed to be playing like a little bit older. Um, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the insinuation is that they've had history that goes back several years. So um, right. she's probably supposed to be more like 40 versus 30, but, but whatever, it doesn't really matter. Um, but you can tell even at this point in time that she is a fucking movie star. Like, yeah. She has she has that she has that quality that movie stars all have, and it just like is practically oozing out of her skin every time she's on camera. Especially when we first we get the first introduction to Connie Stone in a very classic 1940s setup with her singing and everything else. Mm-hmm. Her movie star magnetism is absolutely apparent. Oh yeah, you could totally tell. She's got the fucking look. There's this whole kind of like sternness about her and everything this kind of like iron woman type thing that she does and you know and she's ultimately like a, a femme fatale character so i feel that she balances these two personas of you know the the, the, the singer in the club who's blindly turning the other eye, like, oh, I don't know anything to, yeah, hey, by the way, like, guess what? You know, I I kind of was behind a lot of this stuff. So mm-hmm. she does pull off a really cool change there. Like, I, I honestly forgot that she could look that good and stuff. Immediately, I just go to the, the woman from Boston on 30 Rock and everything, and she's like, right. yeah. You attach that accent onto somebody, it kind of does something to them, you know. You, but, you, uh, want to talk, you want to talk about the worst, the most unattractive accent possibly on the entire planet? Someone right. from New England. Dear, dear yeah. God. Oh, my God. I know. So, like, this was, like, it was just kind of like a, a reminder that, like, yeah, wow, like, Jesus Christ. Like, she totally is, like, a badass and stuff. And, you know, we um we don't get all that much of her na- nowadays, but, like, you know, it kind of took me back to this like really healthy crop of stuff that she's been in and like going from the nineties into the two thousands. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, like I just, I, I picked her because it's just like that quality is so very present. Um, it's hard to ignore, but I mean, you could have picked Clancy Brown. You, yeah. you could have picked, uh, you could have picked David Warner. Has David Warner ever given a bad performance? I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I, I mean, you you could have picked the um, uh, Tugwell. Um, you uh, you could have picked. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? Like you could have picked almost anyone from this. They all they all hit their. They all basically hit the target of what they're going for. It's, yeah, it's, it's there really wasn't a bad performance in the bunch. Yeah, they all, in some way, shape, or form, have their own shining standout moments, and they're all of these standout moments are just so unique that no character shares the same big moments. Yeah, you know, they, yeah. it's all something different. Absolutely. So, how about your? This one was loaded with them. So, how about your favorite effect? 
Okay, so this gives me my opportunity to talk about Tugwell and the scene in the bathroom where there's the magic and all the paper flying around everywhere. Mm -hmm. That was awesome, dude. Totally. Very cool. Did not expect that at all. The paper whizzing around and stuff. And then, like, I was just like, what's going on here? And then, like, in the end, when you see all his faces all paper cut up and stuff, and I was like, wow, just taking paper and making something sinister fucking awesome it was that was that was such a cool and i forgot about that too that was such a cool unexpected way like i mean you knew something terrible was happening was going to happen but i was expecting it one to be significantly more bloody like Mm -hmm. you know like you know somebody gets like ripped in half or something or (laughs) whatever i mean again if this movie was made now that's what would happen like he would like explode or something but it was just such a fucking it was such a fucking unexpected way and it and it, it also sets the it also sets the tone for the character of Tugwell that he's yeah. he's you know obviously he's using magic and we get the that opening scene that everyone uses magic now but the way that he is so coolly coolly and cruelly uses magic to his you know to carry out the will of of uh, Harry is just a that's like a perfect intro to what this character is about yeah and he's got this really like, you know, it's, it's kind of like a little dude, you know what I'm saying? So it mm-hmm. almost, it, it kind of looks like a, like a kid almost, you know, right. with this sinister kind of cruelty to them. And it just, his appearance adds this interesting layer to like everything, you know, cause it looks like, it just looks like some dude that like you and I could get a rolled up newspaper and <laughs> beat the shit out of, you know, but in all reality, he's got a lot of goddamn power and he's kind of really sick twisted way of using that power you know? yeah the, the the size juxtaposition is great too especially like he is in a movie with a bunch of tall actors too mm-hmm. which like, <laughs> makes him seem even shorter um like what's clancy brown like six five or something um I know monster fred, yeah yeah fred ward's like right around you know basically about six feet tall julianne moore is a tall woman um so like he looks and the guy who plays the zombie is enormous um so he looks even smaller by comparison so it is a really interesting um, juxtaposition there so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm with you on that i love that part um I, I i will say i was i totally forgot and i was actually kind of impressed with the fact that they went with the full cthulhu reveal at the end um yeah. significantly more ambitious than i remember this, this this final scene being um and i when i i know guar was founded prior to this movie but boy it, it looked like they're devouring asshole <laughs> Yep, it did. It totally fucking did, dude. Yeah, and like I, that part kind of surprised me because I remember Cthulhu being mostly like tentacles and stuff. So yeah. for him to get the queen alien or the the xenomorph mouth, I was like, all right, wow, okay. And then like you know, the whole eating of the the body and stuff like that just reminded me of exactly what happens on a guar stage. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It was, but that was it was a fun it was a fun ending. Um, practical effects. Um, involved, which, uh, you know, we are big fans of here. Um, anytime we can do any practical effects. So that was fucking awesome. But I also, as you mentioned before, I loved how there's there's tons of magic in the background of almost mm-hmm. every scene. The the coffee stirring itself. People opening up filing cabinets and separating files just in the air. Like, yep. just those little touches in the background that are like, yes, it's, it's magic. Magic is everywhere. It's fucking raining blood. Um... <clears throat> You know, like that kind of stuff is just, it's those, those touches help round out this world in such a perfect way. 
Oh, they really do. Like, I, there was a point in the police station where, like, a typewriter is just typing on its own. Yep. And I was like, it took me a minute. I was like, oh, yeah, there we go. It's right there, too. Like, they even have, like, ghosts and stuff like that in this. It's just another cool, small layer into this world. Yep. It, it was just done. Again, I, I think I, I could have done with a little bit more of it and a little bit more of the practical effects stuff. But, like, the touches mm-hmm. in the background were all just very perfect. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Definitely. Um, so how about, uh, in terms of direction and camera work, what stood out? Okay. Okay. So like for me, there's a, there's a couple examples, but I'll, I'll, one really quick was like this gargoyle that showed up, like the way that they portrayed the gargoyle was amazing. You only got it a couple of times, but you didn't really need it that many times and stuff. It was just this cool element to kind of like drive the, uh, the plot along Mm -hmm. and stuff like, Hey, it's going to show up at crazy times. But I will say that um, in terms of like the overall camera work and everything, the final bit of the movie where the dispel is being cast, the ground opens up, Cthulhu shows up. There's all this crazy fucking hysteria going on and everything that was just that came together so well and was this ending that I really did not expect. Like, you know, I so we're in the car, we're going to the suburbs or whatever, like, and, you know, there's all this, like, talk of, like, the, the, the gods, like, what's going to happen here and stuff, you know, but I, I didn't really know how far they would go with the whole thing, but they put together everything with the Cthulhu, the floor opening up and stuff, just, like, picking this, like, random gazebo, which, to me, looked very similar to like a just just a random gazebo in the middle of nowhere just like Sutter Kane's house just being this random yeah. fucking like church in the middle of nowhere type thing so there was a lot of really great camera work that like was very fat a lot of things going on all at once and they really like hooked me in and there were like twists all leading up to the just even leading up to the the way end of it and stuff and that part was just so different and so quick and fast paced with all this shit going on that I'm like, this just, this little part just stands out so much amongst the rest of the movie. It was awesome. For sure. I think, and you made, you made a really good point about the, about the gargoyle. I think that the, the, the things that they choose to highlight were shown just enough. Like mm-hmm. there's, we got everything in the right amount. We got the gargoyle, the right amount we get when we first get introduced to Olivia, um, we get the unicorn, you know, yep. clopping, clopping through, you know, in front of, uh, in, in front of, uh, Lovecraft's car. Um, just that kind of stuff. Like there's just, they do everything the right amount. Um, yes. when there probably was some, you know, there's probably temptation to have like, let's have another fight scene with the, uh, with the gargoyle. Whereas like the way they did it was just perfect enough. Like just, you did enough mm-hmm. with it. So yeah, bring the gargoyle. Really there. It's just a disruptor. Like, you know, you just need him to come along and disrupt the scenes to move everything, to move it forward and stuff like that. You know, they, there's no way that they needed to have him fight. And I thought the whole thing with him trying to shoot him and just kicking him in the balls was hysterical because that's kind of like how, you know, I mean, kicking in somebody in the balls is always going to be funny. But it's just like, you know, back then, I think that's when society really started to warm up to the idea of kicking somebody in the balls was like in the 90s and everything. And uh, 80s, 90s going that way. So just like to have him fire all these rounds off and then pop him a quick one and all of a sudden that's the thing that does it. I got yeah. a laugh out of it. I, you know, right after, right after the gargoyle punches all the way through Lily. Yeah. Like right. it's, which was, I, I forgot about that death. I was like, holy shit. That was yeah. just like, that was shocking. Yeah, it's just like a right out of nowhere too. I was like, okay, wow. Oh, he's dead. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I love that part. But also, like, so here's this is just like the, this goes to the overall look of the film. And I've mentioned this before. 
This is a movie that largely takes place at night. Mm-hmm. And I can see everything clearly. Imagine that concept, modern filmmakers, modern TV <laughs> makers, setting something at night, but lighting it so I can fucking see what's going on. Um, it's This is astounding to me how, and I, I, I mean, modern movies are colorful, don't get me wrong, like there's plenty of color in it, but especially stuff that takes place at night, we're obsessed with making it as dark as fucking possible. I do not care. Let me see what is going on. Yeah. Let me see what's going on, Game of Thrones, in your fucking amazing, incredible fight scene, um, the Battle of Winterfell. A lot of it was too fucking dark to see. Dude, when I watch TV late at night sometimes, um, like it's just in a room and you know all the lights are off and everything, there are episodes where things go on and I'm just kind of assuming I know what happened because it's so fucking dark. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I am just like, with all the money that people sink into stuff, production values, all this stuff, why do you not want your audience to see what's going on here? You know, like... I, I do not under like in, in Raised by Wolves, for example, like in season two, like the episode, um, it's, I think it's like episode, it's the third to last episode where the snake is going crazy on the inside and stuff, yes. you know, spinning around the, the, the room and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, it's not really, I, it doesn't make it more real if I can only like see a little bit of that. You know, I want to see all of it. Like you could give me all the detail of the snake's face. Give me everything. Don't just do this shit and make it difficult to see. Exactly. There's one of the, one of the best examples of big deal. It's at night. Let's still light it up. The battle of Helm's deep in Lord of the Rings takes place at night and you can clearly see everything that's happening. Everything that's going on and it's bright and detailed and it is very easy to follow that imagery. Yep. Yep. Please go back to doing that. Um, I, I miss I miss being able to see the things I'm watching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, before we get to this part, any um, any final thoughts here? Anything we okay. missed? Really? Really quick. Yeah. Why are all the zombies African-American? Oh, so there is, um, this is more the classic version of where the zombie comes from. It's a, it's a West Indian name, West Indian okay. term. Um, yes. and it is, it does come from like, it does come from, it's a West Indies term that comes from Africa. Um, yeah. and that's where the, the idea, they're more classic zombies. Um, okay. like they're not like dead people. They're people that were like, they're people that were cursed or reanimated or whatever. Yeah, um, okay. so like it's, it, it goes way back to the original idea of a, of a zombie from West Africa. And then obviously into the Caribbean and the West Indies. Okay. Cause I remember that part in the, in the, the, the movie where Clancy Brown is talking about like, Oh yeah, you know, we can get shipped over six in a box or something yep. like that. And I, um, I remembered that I was, I'm aware of like the, the, like where it comes from and all that stuff. But like, I just was like, it was interesting that all of them were African-American, but like that, that makes a little more sense that they're going with like the classic direction or the, the classic interpretation of the zombie. Right. It, it goes back to, um, it goes back to African shaman and like the origins of voodoo that they could make, they could turn people into zombies into like, sl- I mean, not surprisingly, they could turn people into slaves. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So, gotcha. That, so that's like the very, that's the classic version of what a zombie is. Um, and it's, it's obviously it's Romero that changes what, what a modern pop culture zombie is. Yes, I gotcha. Definitely. Okay. That makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, I think I thought I had something else here, but I can't remember if I forgot something here. 
Um, no, no, we're good to go. So Siskel and Ebert, I'm assuming we're both going to go ahead and give this two thumbs way up. Oh, this is enthusiastically like this is as thumbs up as I could out of the the B movies that we have done so far. I'm giving this one the thumbsiest of, of of all of them, and mainly because it was just such a fun experience. Like following, I think is a like maybe like a way more important movie in terms of the the B movie, and it's just like sure. maybe like a little bit better of a, of a product overall. But if we're just talking about laying back and having a fucking good time, this one takes the cake. This was by far and away the, the funnest viewing out of all the ones that we did. Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. I, I, I agree. And I, I like how you position that like following is definitely it's more important in terms of like examining a filmmaker. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this, it is like really it, it was a really interesting dive into like seeing exactly where Christopher Dolan's ideas come from and how right. they first were put on film. But like I had, I again, this is a movie I've seen before and I really enjoyed, and I have, I had so much fucking fun watching it again. God, was this movie fun? Yeah, just a really good fucking time. Occasionally, everybody, you could just go have fun in the movie. <laughs> not, not everything has to be some uh, crazy interpretation of themes and character studies. Sometimes you just want to go there and have a good fucking time. And like this was like a, it was like one of those good time movies that like I hadn't, like I just hadn't felt like like this fun in a while. Like I watched, mm-hmm. I saw Spider, uh, the most recent Spider-Man um, let, let two weekends ago. I, yeah. I sat down and watched it. And like, like, yeah, like, it, you know, it was cool. It was fun. You know, it was great to see Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe and everything. But like, I still feel that this movie was like way more fun. You know, it was also a lot shorter and there wasn't a big lull in the middle where Peter Parker decides to save all these people. But um, <laughs> This uh, th- this movie was just like ninety minutes of a of a good fucking time. Yep, yep, a, a good fucking time. A, a fun actors, uh, you know, doing doing a fun job, you know, taking their roles seriously. Um, it, it just like this is this is a, and this is a, uh, this is a home run in the same way we're gonna mention. I'm gonna mention it again. Um, this is a home run in the same way the void's a home run. Like it's Mm -hmm. this, you know, this movie definitely is what it is and it's the absolute best version of what it is. Yep. Definitely, dude. Definitely. Um, all right. So any, so before we, so this is our last episode for B movie may. So as we wrap up here, just have a, I just have a couple of quick, one quick question. Well, a couple of quick questions for you. Have you seen any, um, not necessarily in theaters, but have you seen any B movies recently that you like that are, that are more recent, more modern? Oh my God. Um, we like a couple of years ago, Jess and I watched like an indie horror flick called Powerbomb that our that our friends had okay. made. You know, we had rented it from Amazon. Um, I tried to watch Clown within the last like couple bit, a couple years or two. Like, it, it was good. It was it was okay. It was just like not as not necessarily like what I thought it was going to be. And yeah, I mean, I that's pretty much it. Like, I, I'm trying to think of like. Maybe even like some of the lower, like lower budget stuff, but even then, like the lower budget stuff is still ninety million dollars. So. I know <laughs> it's insane. Like it's Joker insane. might, Joker might be one of the like cheapest movies that I've watched in like recent time, and it's, it's crazy to even think that because the the production budget on that wasn't anything to get excited about. Right. Right. Um, yeah, no, I got you. So, I mean, we've, I mentioned, or we've already mentioned a couple, um, if you want to see another movie with Cthulhu in it, Underwater is not a bad way to spend 95 minutes or so. Um, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy, and I think is very underrated. Um, have you seen Overlord? No, I have not. 
worth worth the fucking view. Um, it's got some. It's got it's a World War Two B movie wherein we're fighting Nazi zombies, and nice. um, got some some of my favorites in it. Giovanna Depo is the uh, is the main character. Um, and then we have like, I don't know, like uh, 35 members of Game of Thrones are in it. Um, <laughs> get, at least three. Um, who the fuck's in it? Mark Rissman, um, Pilu Asbeck, and Grey Worm are in it. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, but it's like, it, it really is just like, it starts off starts off with a really great practical effect of um, Jovan Adepo's plane getting shot down. And mm-hmm. then we're right into, oh, Bokeem Woodbine's in it too for a little bit. Um, and then we're right into Nazis killing people and then the zombies show up and it's fucking great. <laughs> nice. Very, very nice. Yeah. Like I did, I saw the void. I watched the void like within the last 365 days. So that might be the most recent one that I saw. There's something, there's something else that I saw recently and I, and I can't put my fucking finger on it. Um, oh, um, spectral is an interesting, an interesting sci-fi B movie that kind of involves ghosts as soldiers possibly interesting okay it's, it's it is again if i would never see this movie in theaters but it's on it's probably still on netflix i think it's technically like a netflix or uh, distributed by netflix if you will um mm-hmm. or whatever um again like about 100 minutes of some interesting special effects and uh soldiers being killed by ghosts Wow, I just saw Wyatt Russell is in this Overlord movie. Gotta yep. love that they put the new Captain America in there. That's awesome. Wow. it's it, Overlord's fun. It's a fun movie. Yeah, I'm going to check this out. This looks pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, that's it. I, I, I guess I don't have anything else for uh, for this. Uh, any final thoughts as we, as we finish out B-Movie May? This is another great uh, movie May here, dude. This is really cool. I got to see stuff that I hadn't seen before and everything. Like, stuff that not only had I not seen, but I was really happy with. So I would chalk this up as another successful B movie May. I, I, I agree. This was, this was definitely a fun time. Um, we're, we are back to back. Excellent B movie or uh, movie maze. Oh, that's, I knew I wanted to bring something up. Have you had a chance to check out uh, love death and robots yet? No, I, I hadn't. I, um, so, good stuff. so far so good. We get it. We get a return of the three robots. Um, which is fun, and okay. David Fincher's first selection in this is awesome. Yeah, he's the second installment in the because the, the yep. three robots is first, right? Yes, correct. Okay, yeah, I've um, what happened was is uh, I was going to watch it last week, but it was late at night, and I'm like, yeah, I want to like not be about to go to sleep when I watch this whole thing for sure. So. Fin- Fincher's um, Fincher's film is one of those ones I'm like, ooh, I want the full version of this. Yeah, so I know what I'm going to be doing. I got about, uh, let's see here, I got 40 minutes until the new Wilco album drops, so I might knock out a couple of these before that happens. There you go, there you go. (laughs) All right, I don't have anything else. You want to lead us out of here? Yeah, you bet, dude. Everybody out there, thank you so much for tuning in to another successful movie, May. This is Adam Chemilewski and Matthew Pagel. We are The Occasionalists, and we will see you next time. Thank you.